1: that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.
0: Hi, this is Jenny. And Jen from Ancient History Fangirl. This is parts one and two of our Julius Caesar episodes all in one place. For your listening
1: enjoyment. Entertainment. Infotainment.
0: Infotainment. This file includes Julius Caesar and the Pirates' Ransom and Julius Caesar and the Devils' Three-Way. That might
1: be one of my favorite titles ever.
0: Who came up with it? I don't remember.
1: Oh, I think it was me. (laughs) It's not quite as good as Actium Baby, but it's up there.
0: (laughs) Actium Baby is maybe my favorite episode title. Anyway, so these are both episodes that detail what occurred in Julius Caesar's early life and career before he went to Gaul. Most accounts of Caesar's life focus on his later career. I would say that a lot of the time when I see, you know, accounts of Julius Caesar's life, like documentaries and stuff like that, it kind of starts in Gaul or on his later career, but his early life and career are just as fascinating. And they're also more fun and a little bit more lighthearted because at this point, Julius Caesar hasn't become the genocidal dictator that we all know him as.
1: Yeah, it was... Literally, this first episode, um, Julius Caesar and the Pirate's Ransom, that Jenny told me that convinced me to let her go down the rabbit hole. Not that I could stop her, let's be honest. I can't stop Jenny from doing anything. But that convinced me to give Julius Caesar a chance. And I found myself being won over by him in places that was very, very disturbing for me.
0: What I loved about the sprawling 13 episode arc that we wound up doing on Caesar was that we absolutely did not skimp on anything in his life. We were very clear-eyed about the atrocities he committed. But we also told you in detail about his early life. And I think that's what got me hooked. And I know it's what got Jen hooked. And it's, it's why you keep going in this season. And, like, why it's so heartbreaking in the end. And in this arc, this two-episode, all-in-one-place giant file that we're giving you, you're going to learn about that time he was kidnapped by pirates— demanded they raise his ransom because he was so important. He was nobody yet. He was, like, in his early 20s. And then he sat around on the beach reading them his bad poetry and berating them when they critiqued it. I just loved that.
1: Yeah, Julius Caesar would not have survived in a poetry
0: workshop. He would have been yelling at everybody and threatening to crucify them for critiquing his poetry. I'm an artist! Actually, that (laughs) verse is a little bit derivative of Robert Frost.
1: Do you know how hard it is to rhyme wang? (laughs) You'll learn about how Julius Caesar, in his 20s, made his early career all about prosecuting powerful governors for corruption in the provinces they governed, a move that was politically dangerous because it made him a lot of very powerful enemies, even as it laid the groundwork for his political career as a populist.
0: You'll also learn about how, at the age of 18 or so, Julius Caesar stood up to the powerful and terrifying dictator Sulla who had been hanging the heads of his enemies in the rostra and rearranging aristocratic marriages to suit himself, and refused, refused to divorce his own 16-year-old wife. He then had to go into hiding, almost died of malaria, and got bailed out by his mom, who convinced Sulla to go easy on him. And you get to
1: like Caesar in these episodes. And then, once Caesar goes to Gaul, that's when the rug gets ripped out from under you.
0: Because we're cruel. We're just cruel like that.
1: We are. We're cruel women.
0: We didn't include all of the episodes in the Caesar arc in this file because that would be like 30 hours long. What we wanted to do was get you hooked. We wanted to draw you into this rabbit hole. And of course, if you want to continue, all the rest of the episodes are in our back catalog for you to binge. They're very easy to find. If you're not hooked after this, I don't know what to tell you.
1: We hope you have a great summer and we'll be back on September 22nd with a brand new weekly series.
0: Marius was starting to gum the furniture. It's the third body they fished out of the Tiber this week, and it's only Tuesday. It's wrapped in a cloth sack, but a hand falls out, limp and swollen from the river, and a ruby ring winks on a finger. You recognize that ring. It's another one of your wife's relatives. You decide if you live through this, you're not going to tell her. She's been through enough. Your guards are in a hurry. Move on, they say. The dictator doesn't like to be kept waiting. You let a jest fall from your lips, and they all laugh, and for a moment you've made them compatriots, you and these men who may be leading you to your own execution. This is your power. You've always had this power. And now you're swaggering along the riverbank as if you were the one leading the way to a party in your honor. Your father hated when you did this. Your father told you to keep your head down. Your father died putting on his shoes. You will not be like your father. You've all lost friends and family since the dictator took the city. Since then, the prescriptions have weeded out his critics. Men march down the streets, waving the severed heads of their brothers-in-law and former colleagues. The dictator praises them, rewards them, hangs the heads in the senate building, and that's where the dictator is waiting for you now. He is not an attractive man. His face is dead white, corpse white. His eyes a watery blue. Red pock marks cover his face. His hair is a singular red, like the hair of a body that's been soaking in a bog. A circle of severed heads stare blank and gate mouth down from their pikes. He doesn't want your life, not yet. What he wants is for you to divorce your wife. This is not an unusual request. Since the dictator took the city, previous marriages are valid only if he chooses. Your wife's family was ranked high in the previous government, and he wants her married off to one of his supporters. She's wasted on a nobody like you. The dictator doesn't have to spell it out for you. Don't get cocky, he doesn't say. You're 18 years old, without money or rank or power, and you are the nephew of his defeated enemy. You're lucky your head isn't already dangling in the Senate building. You think of Cornelia, who's young and not vicious enough to fend for herself in this city. You look up at the circle of heads dripping gore on the marble. Then you look at the dictator who is waiting for your answer with his eyebrows raised, his head tilted to one side like an inquisitive bird. You look at the dictator and you tell him no. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. To understand the story of Julius Caesar, you have to understand the political element in which he swam. There were three defining rules of this element. The first was that kings were the devil. And we don't know exactly what happened to the Romans in 509 BC to make them swear off kings. There's a story they told about the rape of Lucretia, where the son of a king sexually assaulted an aristocratic woman and she committed suicide out of shame. This story is probably mythical. Archaeology tells us that the Etruscans, a much more ancient Italian culture, probably controlled the area around Rome around this time, and archaeology doesn't tell us what atrocity they committed to make the Romans torch their traditional monarchy, but something must have happened, and the ancient Romans went to great, great lengths to ensure that it never happened again.
1: And that's really unique, Jenny, that they did away with kings. A lot of ancient cultures did not have a democracy. Obviously, we look to Greece, who did have a democracy, but many cultures around this time had kings.
0: Yeah, they had kings or they had a theocracy where they had sort of a king priest or something. Those are older ways of organizing your community. And something happened that made them think everybody has to have a say in government. And they put a lot of checks and balances up, which means they must have been really scared of anyone having too much power over them them, which is really interesting.
1: Yeah, and it's really important that we let you guys know this now because everything that happens in the rest of this story and in Caesar's incredible life stemmed from the fact that the Roman people were terrified of having one person in charge. The Romans built a new system that decentralized power in a way that was radical for its time, a democracy, And here's how it worked. In place of a king, two men shared the position of consul, the highest political office. These two people were elected by the citizens of Rome to lead the Senate and military. And by citizens of Rome, we
0: don't mean one person, one vote. No, we do not. Slaves couldn't vote and women couldn't vote. Freedmen couldn't vote. You had to be a citizen. Right. A freedman is a person who had been a slave, but who had been freed. There
1: were a lot of checks placed on the power of consuls. First, the double office meant that neither consul had absolute power. They had to work together. What a crazy idea. Teamwork. I know. Second, there was a strong Senate to contend with. Third, Consuls only served for a year, although you could be elected again after a 10-year break. Just looking at how the wheels of government grind in both of our countries, a year is nothing.
0: Imagine trying to get something done in a year when you have to work with somebody else and you also have to convince the Senate of everything. I mean, it just seems so ineffectual. They were so afraid of one person having too much power in this culture, in this society, that they really put a lot of checks and balances on their consuls.
1: Yeah, you're totally right, Jenny. All these measures meant that no one person could hold too much power in Rome for too long.
0: The second rule of Caesar's element was that armies were loyal to individual generals, not the Roman state. It would be like if the standing army in your country was loyal to your country's highest ranking general, not your president or prime minister or top political leader. And lesser generals also had their own armies. And sometimes if the infighting got out of hand, the generals would turn their armies against their country and each other. And yeah, we are also aware that stuff like this has happened in modern times. I mean, yeah. That's how you have a military coup. Exactly. So, the third rule of Caesar's element. Extreme violence was part of the political process. People who won elections were occasionally beaten to death by angry mobs of the losing side's supporters. Some senators had armed followers who would crowd the Senate House, shouting down and sometimes assaulting their political enemies. Not infrequently, to go to work as a senator in ancient Rome meant risking your life. And when things got really bad, severed heads hung in the rostra and corpses choked the Tiber. But we're getting to that.
1: Yeah. And I just want to stop for a minute because when you told me this fact about senators getting their followers to go and beat up the winning candidates, followers and supporters, I was like, that is totally, totally insane. And yet... This was the reality. I know. And we talk about political divisiveness now. This was just as bad back in Caesar's day. It was a shark tank. The safeguards that the Roman Republic put in place against the devil weren't perfect. There were violations, but they more or less held for about 400 years until a guy named Marius broke the system. And the story of Julius Caesar starts here because there could not have been a Caesar without a Marius. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is
0: History's Secret Heroes
1: Marius was born in 157 BC, 57 years before Caesar, and even at a young age, he was the kind of person that myths sprung up around. One of them was that as a teenager, he discovered an eagle's nest with seven chicks in it, a very rare thing, because eagles almost never had more than three at a time. Later, in hindsight, this was taken as an omen that Marius would hold the consulship of Rome, the Republic's highest office, seven times, which, incidentally, he did. During one of his consulships, Marius enshrined the eagle as the symbol of Rome, which is why, from then on, each legion carried its own golden eagle into battle.
0: Marius was elected to his first consulship in 107 BC at the age of 50. Can I just say, he was 50, like, wow, in the ancient world. His career started kind of late. No, his career
1: started exactly on time. There's nothing wrong with hitting your high at 50.
0: Right, and it also means that we have things to look forward to, which is nice to think we don't all peak early. Marius was a populist fighting against a corrupt and ineffective nobility, and one of his major projects was a series of military reforms, the Marian reforms, that opened up military service to all male Roman citizens, not just the ones with land and money. Under Marius' new system, you could actually earn land in return for loyal service, so it was an avenue for upward mobility all of a sudden. These reforms tied the troops' loyalty to individual generals rather than the Roman state because land grants to soldiers flowed from the generals. People didn't realize it at the time, but this was a major step toward loosening the checks on individual power in Rome. Marius was making it so that the armies were loyal to him alone, not the Senate, not the state, just Marius'.
1: And Marius was an extremely good leader. He had a common touch, eating meals with his soldiers and sharing in their menial labor. When he became consul, he proved himself as a general, ending an ongoing war with the Numidian king Jugurtha in North Africa, and then turning around and defeating the Cimbri and the Teutones, two Germanic tribes who had been causing the Roman army serious trouble. During this period, Rome was racked by war, and Marius was elected consul five times, between 104 and 100. BC. That is definitely not a 10 year gap, Jenny.
0: Right. It is not. Marius was breaking in the rules.
1: Yeah, this was another step to reducing the checks on individual power because there was supposed to be a 10-year break between consulships for any one individual. Marius's consecutive consulships tested the Roman restriction against one-man rule, but this was an emergency. The wars were so bad and Marius was so good a general that the rules were stretched like taffy.
0: (laughs) Taffy breaks eventually. I mean, not to foreshadow things.
1: (laughs) I mean, not at all. (laughs) Marius had an underling named Sulla the son of a noble patrician family that had fallen on hard times Sulla had served under marius in numidia around modern-day Algeria fighting against king Jugurtha he was the one who actually captured Jugurtha but his commander marius claimed credit as you do when you are the commander and that really pissed Sulla off
0: But eventually, Sulla got out from under Marius's shadow. He earned his own glory as a general, helping Rome win the social war against neighboring Italian tribes. Sulla was also elected consul, and the Senate appointed him to lead the war against King Mithridates in Pontus, who definitely deserves his own episode. This was a great opportunity for Sulla to win even more renown and glory, and he enthusiastically began raising an army. The ancient Roman military was very DIY. The generals had to raise their own armies. But before he could set off, Marius engineered for the Senate to assign him the command against Mithridates instead. Because at this point, Marius was 69 years old, and his reputation as a general had flagged somewhat, and he needed some more military victories to restore it. Yeah, because
1: God forbid a 69-year-old should be able to bask in the glory of, of his service. Oh no, Marius had to be a whole daddy shark.
0: Well, Sulla was the baby shark snapping at his heels. He couldn't let that happen.
1: He couldn't let that happen because Sulla wanted to be like, I'm no longer the baby shark in this song. And if you don't know the song we're talking about, we will put it in the show notes because... Should we sing it? Are we going to sing the baby shark song?
0: <laughs> if we sing it, I might actually have to put it in the episode. Just fair warning. Are you ready? I'm ready.
1: <laughs> this is the song that we're talking about.
0: This is the song that describes Sulla and Marius's relationship. One two, three. Baby, baby shark. Shark shark do you Wait, do how does do it go? Baby <laughs> shark do you think? Yeah, we're gonna shark. do it in. All right, one, <laughs> two, two, three. three. Baby shark doo 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 baby shark doo doo. We literally cannot do this together at the same time. The next verse though is Daddy shark doo doo Daddy shark doo doo Daddy shark Daddy shark. Actually,
1: mommy shark comes before daddy shark. Just so you know. <laughs> well, yeah, but this is
0: just, this is about Sola and Marius, okay? Yes, this is their progression, and then right. after that, you get Grandpa Shark and Grandpa Shark, 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 do, do, I do, 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 Shark, 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 Okay, we have totally messed up the Sulla
1: and Marius baby shark song. We have. But I think the important thing that we were trying to do with explaining this to you in a ridiculous roundabout way, because why would we do anything straightforward and simple, is that Marius is getting to his point where, yes, he hit his prime at 50 and now was 69. It was only 19 years that he had sort of been like the top daddy shark. And he was not ready to become the gummy mouth ramba shark. He wasn't ready to turn over his power to Sulla who was snapping at his heels and saying, okay, dude, you're nearly 70. Maybe let me take on some of this stuff. When is it going to be my turn? Right.
0: I mean, I think that that's the thing here is that Marius was starting to gum the furniture. And I mean, he was 69 (laughs) in the ancient world. Like, amazing. A lot of people who are 69 are still 100% contributing to society. But this was the ancient world. And yeah, no,
1: I'm not. I'm not talking about modern day world. And I think that's the really important distinction that I'm trying to make. I'm incredibly thrilled that Marius actually hit his stride at 50 and he had 19 years when people sometimes don't experience those highs to have amazing things happen to him and i'm not suggesting he shouldn't continue having an amazing life but i can also see from sulla's point of view sulla wants his turn sulla is the prince charles in in today's day and age isn't he it's like okay all right queen elizabeth you have now beaten the record for the longest sitting monarch maybe it's my turn like i'm 70 it'd be
0: nice to sit on the throne for a couple of years years before I can't? No? Okay. Anyway, at this point, Marius had taken Sulla's command of the Mithridates War from him, and Sulla did not take this well. He had just finished raising his own army to go fight Mithridates, and thanks to Marius's own reforms, that army was loyal to Sulla not the Republic. Sulla turned his army against Rome itself, marching in to quote-unquote liberate the city from Marius. It was the first time a general had ever turned the Republic's own army against it.
1: Marius marshaled the city's gladiators to defend the city, but they were quickly defeated because not all gladiators were Spartacus. Marius had to flee, and Sulla put a price on his head. Then, probably figuring that Marius would go slump off somewhere to die without causing more trouble, Sulla took his army and went off to fight Mithridates, because he was still really, Really, really set on fighting that fight for some reason. That was his hill that he wanted to die on.
0: Yeah, he wanted to die on the Mithridates Hill. The thing is, Marius didn't go off and die
1: because sixty nine isn't that old, guys. Instead, he raised another army and re quote unquote liberated Rome again. And this really triggered Zella. He came back and he came back angry. For several years, these two powerful generals fought over the city of Rome like two daddy sharks over a harbor seal. (laughs) Sorry, you're just going to get all the sharks, guys. But you know that by now. We like sharks. When one was in charge, he'd relentlessly persecute the other's allies. You could walk across the Tiber on all the floating corpses and severed heads swung in the rostra. Nowhere was safe no one was safe. And it was in this bloody, brutal political environment that Julius Caesar came of age.
0: Julius Caesar was born in 100 BC. That was the year a senator named Memmius was elected consul and then beaten to death in the Forum by an angry mob of the losing candidate's followers. In retribution, another angry mob blockaded the first angry mob in the Senate House and bludgeoned them to death with roof tiles. Caesar was about 14 when Marius died in 86 BC. Sulla, who'd been driven out of Rome, bore down on the city with an army at his back, intending to take over for good. Before he'd even reached the city, a crowd of 3,000 panicking Roman citizens met him on the road to beg for peace. Sulla told the citizens he'd go easy on the city as long as they would go into town ahead of him and slaughter all those they could find who were planning to resist him.
1: These 3,000 must have been desperate because they did what Sulla said. They turned around, marched back into the city, as Sulla had commanded and immediately began killing their neighbors. Sulla sat back with his army and watched the people of the city massacre each other. And when they were done, he rounded up the survivors, 6,000 people, some of them from the original 3,000 who just fought for him and imprisoned them in the Circus Maximus. And here's what happened next, according to Plutarch. And then the Senate was summoned by Sulla. And at one and the same moment, he himself began to speak in the Senate and those assigned to the task began to cut to pieces the 6,000 in the circus. The shrieks of such a multitude who were being massacred in a narrow space filled the air, and the senators were dumbfounded, but Sulla, with the calm and unmoved countenance with which he had begun to speak, ordered them to listen to his words and not concern themselves with what was going on outside. For it was only that some criminals were being admonished by his orders.
0: So yeah, so just pay no attention to the 6,000 people screaming and begging for their lives outside while I give this very calm and very rational speech.
1: I know. I mean, what must the senator have been thinking? Sulla has now come into the city like a freaking king. He's massacring people who fought for him, people who were just in the city who might have opposed him because they preferred Marius. And now he's like, hey, let's have a rational
0: chat. Forget the fact that I could have 6,000 people killed while I'm talking to you.
1: Eyes on me. Eyes on
0: me. Focus. Right. It's chilling. And he was setting himself up as a dictator, which was anathema because kings were the devil. Yeah. And dictators were the devil. Dictators were the devil, and this was exactly what these people were afraid of. He was their worst nightmare. Sulla was their worst nightmare. And here's the thing. It got worse. Sulla then published the names of hundreds of people who at any point had sided with Marius. It was open season on those names. Any who killed someone on Sulla's list would be rewarded handsomely. Anyone who harbored a person on that list, including their own parents, wives, siblings, and other close family members, would find themselves next in line for slaughter. These killings didn't just extend to Rome, by the way. They became law everywhere in Italy. And here's how it worked. If you killed someone on Sulla's list, decapitated the corpse, and brought Sulla the severed head, he'd hang it up in the rostra like you would your child's drawing from kindergarten on your fridge. And you got to keep the dead person's stuff. The dead person didn't have to be on the list, by the way. You could bring Sulla any head you wanted. You could even add the name of your kill to the list, after the murder, Sulla was not watching this list closely and everybody knew it. A lot of people enriched themselves this way by killing their wealthier neighbors and taking their stuff. Here's how Plutarch describes it.
1: Quote, those who fell victim to the political resentment and private hatred were as nothing compared with those who were butchered for the sake of their property. Nay, even the executioners were prompted to say that his great house killed this man, his garden that man, his warm baths another. Quintus Aurelius, a quiet and inoffensive man who thought his only share in the general calamity was to condole with others in their misfortunes, came into the forum and read the list of the prescribed and finding his own name there, said, "'Woe is me! My Alban estate is prosecuting me!' And he had not gone far before he was dispatched by someone who had hunted him down."
0: Yeah, so basically people were framing it like that. Like this guy's house killed him and this guy's nice baths killed him. It's like the gardens in Messalina's time, right? Yeah, it totally is. Or
1: like the purges in Tiberius and Caligula's times. People were using this period of uncertainty and Sulla's need to get rid of all of his enemies as a chance to enrich their personal wealth. And if you had a neighbor who had something you wanted, well, Sulla had a list. Just put their name on it.
0: And I think it works in Sulla's favor because he was encouraging this chaos. And while while everyone was turned against each other, they couldn't unite against him.
1: Absolutely. And while they were turned against each other, and while the people who used this to enhance their fortunes, they were going to be infinitely grateful to Sulla, who had made it all possible.
0: Yeah, if Sulla did decide to crack down and stop it, they'd be grateful to him for restoring order. So there's that too. Exactly. He was kind of an evil Machiavellian genius. He was the devil, and he was exactly what the Romans were afraid of when they enacted their democracy. They were trying to prevent Sulla. They were, and as we said, it
1: continues to get worse. Sulla also redistributed women. He rearranged aristocratic marriages to his own political ends and forced many highborn women to divorce their existing husbands and marry his followers because women were property and... (laughs)
0: Yep, sounds about right. Yep, toxic masculinity, our old friend. Crack a window, would you, Jen? At this point in history, it was dangerous to be a former ally or relative of Marius. And if you were one or both of these and you said no to Sulla, that was suicide. Which is why when Sulla ordered the 18-year-old nephew of Marius to divorce his wife, he had every expectation that the boy would keep his mouth shut and obey. That kid was lucky his head wasn't already hanging in the rostra. But he didn't obey. He said no. That kid was Julius Caesar. No, Jenny,
1: that kid, Julius fucking Caesar. (laughs) Right, that was Julius fucking Caesar. You guys, this is your warning. There is a possibility that we will say Julius fucking Caesar a few times.
0: We're gonna say it a lot. This is your warning.
1: Julius Caesar wasn't anyone particularly important. His family was an ancient one. Supposedly, they went back to the founding of Rome, but their fortunes had dwindled over the centuries, and now they were on the fringes of power. He became the head of his household at the age of sixteen. His father had died putting on his shoes, which is just such a random fact jenny it (laughs) random facts though they're awesome they are. Caesar's wife was Cornelia, the daughter of Cinna, a prominent ally of Marius. The couple had married young, around 16 and 14 respectively. So Caesar was very closely aligned with the Marius side of the conflict, and that alone was enough to get you killed in Sulla's Rome. Refusing to divorce Cornelia was a very, very ballsy move on Caesar's part.
0: So Caesar, the nobody baby shark, stood up to Sulla, the terrifying dictator shark. Dictator Shark. Dictator Shark shark Dictator Shark This is a terrible song. Well it's not a terrible song for
1: children. Maybe not appropriate for ancient history, but what do I know?
0: Sulla issued an order for Caesar's arrest, and Caesar went into hiding. Problem was, Sulla controlled the entire Italian peninsula at this point, and there was really nowhere to hide. Caesar just barely stayed ahead of his patrols, moving every night to a new safe house. Then, he contracted malaria. When Sulla's henchmen caught up with him, Caesar bribed them to let him go. Caesar might have died on the run, or eventually been captured, except he had a very effective ally in Rome his mom. Caesar's mom, Aurelia, was a political force to be reckoned with. She wasn't a Vestal virgin herself, but she was very active in women's religious orders, and she marshaled the support of the Vestals to pressure Sulla to forgive and forget. It all begins here, doesn't it, Jenny?
1: This is the beginning of the Julian-Claudian women really taking such a strong role in shaping and forming the dynasty and the futures of the men who would come after them. Yeah. We just did that whole arc on Agrippina and Agrippina <laughs> <laughs> and more Agrippina more Agrippina's and Antonia's and Julia's and they are all descendants of this family and it's just amazing to go back this far in history and realize they were always playing this game and effectively maneuvering in the back channel to shape Roman politics yeah Sulla, the merciless dictator who'd slaughtered 6,000 people just outside the Senate House and redecorated the forum with the heads of his enemies did what the Vestals told him the Vestals were highly respected and while not directly political, their influence counted for a lot. Sulla had his misgivings about it, though. Suetonius tells us, and this may be legendary hindsight because it's not contemporary, is it? That Sulla said, quote, in this Caesar, there are many Mariuses. Many Mariuses. sisses,
0: sisses, <laughs> S- <laughs> That's exactly how he said it.
1: That's exactly how he said it. You know, several hundred years after the events, it's fine. Right. It's all contemporary. It's amazing. Because <laughs> so, because Suetonius goes through all the Caesars, which means I'm pretty sure he goes through Claudius. So there's no way this is contemporary.
0: He picks the worst ones. It's yeah. the 12 Caesars. And he picks, like, the worst Caesars. Anyway, anyway moving on. Moving on. <laughs>
1: So Caesar came back to Rome and you'd think he'd have had the good sense to keep his head down and stay out of trouble because, you know, Caesar, your mom has bailed you out once, but there's no guarantee she can do it again. And also she might need to use that power for other people who need help. So don't be greedy.
0: Yeah. Don't take all the back channel resources for yourself, Caesar. Exactly, Caesar. Just like get your shit together. But no, no, Caesar did
1: not keep his head down. Instead, he proceeded to strut around Rome like a
0: freaking peacock. Because he was Julius fucking Caesar. Even the way he dressed broke norms. The traditional senator's outfit was a white toga with a purple stripe. Caesar wore his own version with long sleeves that reached down to his wrist, ending in a fringe. Nobody else wore a belt with their toga, but Caesar did. A loose belt. Nobody wore their toga fringy and their belt loose, but Caesar just swaggered around like that and Sulla was heard to have told the other senators to keep a very watchful eye on that loose girded boy. Caesar was lucky to get a job that took him out of town, because if he hadn't, his head might have wound up in the rostra after all. His new job involved serving as a close aide to the governor of Asia—what part of Asia? I don't know, it just said Asia—where he got his first taste of battle. He fought in the Siege of Mytilene in eighty one BC. He'd have been about nineteen. Not a lot is known about this battle or what Caesar did during it, but we do know that he won the highest award for heroism that a citizen could earn, the civic crown. This was a crown of oak leaves that you could only win by risking your life to save another citizen's life in battle. Could we put a picture of the crown in the show notes? Because magpie. Sure.
1: After that, the governor of Asia sent the nineteen year old Caesar on a mission. Go to King Nicomedes of Bithynia, a client kingdom of Rome to negotiate for a fleet of warships. Nicomedes was an older man, and he welcomed the youthful Caesar lavishly, with feasts and luxuries of every description. And Caesar hung out with Nicomedes just a little bit longer than it took to get those warships. So long, in fact, that people started to think that Caesar and Nicomedes were totally doing it.
0: I just think this is so romantic. It's like the young, handsome soldier meets the really glamorous older king, and they just have this amazing steamy affair. I mean, I hope that's the way it would be, but the king
1: is not a power dynamic, and Caesar isn't, and there's a possibility that it wasn't that way.
0: Well, I don't see anything in the record that suggests that this was coercive, and also, if there was an unequal power dynamic going on here, it's actually possible that Caesar was the one with the power, because Nick was a client king, and the Romans had kind of a reputation of being extremely arrogant to less powerful rulers that they had foreign relations with. There is a really famous example of this from before Caesar's time. There was this guy, Laenus, who was serving as a consul in Rome. He was sent to talk another king, Antiochus, out of starting a war the Romans didn't want started. Whole... Long story, and when Antiochus said, I don't know, I have to think about it, Linus drew a circle around him with a stick and said, have your answer before you step out of the circle. Like, this is what foreign relations sounded like to the Romans not really
1: diplomatic guys.
0: Yeah, I'm not to say that this was always the case, but I'm just saying that from what I have read, there's a lot of arrogance there and a lot of heavy-handed wielding of power and if Nicomedes was a client king, it's possible that Caesar would have swept in there as the really arrogant representative of the more powerful Roman state and it's possible that even though he was a king, the power dynamic tilted in the other direction. So, we don't know, but it's, you know, one of the possibilities. Or
1: maybe they were just on an equal playing field. I mean, Caesar was only- 19.
0: That's the other thing about it is that there was an age difference and Caesar was quite young. So there's that. When is there not like an inappropriate age dynamic going on in couples in the ancient world? I feel like this is constant, but I think given what we know about Caesar and what we know about Roman foreign relations, it's quite possible that Nicomedes was the lesser power in this power dynamic, or at least this evened the playing field so that these two were equal. In which case swoon possible that they found something they loved about each other i'm totally picturing nicomedes as like jeff goldblum i mean who's your hot older guy that you would picture him as jen i don't know the answer to this question (laughs) i know what you're thinking do you tell me what i'm thinking I think you're thinking Keith Morrison. <laughs> oh my God, Keith Morrison!
1: Yes. And then he would just tell him a story and it would just be in this beautiful lyric voice. And Caesar would be like, I just, anything you want to tell me, Keith, I'm just here to listen.
0: My Nicomedes is older Jeff Goldblum, but you do you, babe. I mean, older Jeff Goldblum is
1: also beautiful, but I'm going to rock this torch for Keith.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it's it. It's my eternal flame. It's fine. <laughs> Just swoon, right? Like, ah, beautiful. Swoon.
1: It kind of makes me happy to see a record in which maybe Caesar was bisexual. And it seems like what a nice relationship. It makes me think of Achilles and Patroclus. And you all know how I feel about that relationship.
0: Yeah, I feel like Patroclus really humanized Achilles. Anyway, so this rumor that Caesar and Nicomedes were having this affair was actually a big scandal back in Rome because of the weird type of toxic masculinity they had. Sex between men wasn't universally condoned. If you did it in the army, you could be put to death. It looked way better if you were the top in the relationship because the ancient Romans reserved a lot of contempt for people on the receiving end of gay sex or street sex because of misogyny. You were supposed to be the giver and not the receiver and the joke here was that Caesar was the receiver. And yes, we're aware that that is completely toxic and a horrible way to look at things. This rumor would keep coming up for Caesar throughout his life and one joke his enemies used to make was that Caesar laid the Gauls low, Nicomedes laid Caesar low, which is totally the tagline of this romance novel I'm writing in my head. But Caesar was was very prickly about these rumors. So at any rate, Caesar hung
1: out just a little too long in Bithynia, maybe because he was having a steamy affair with a totally hot older man who happened to be a king, or maybe because you just like the food and the climate. Who knows?
0: Yeah, and it was probably a lot more luxurious at Nicomedes' place than it was in the camps with the governor of Asia. There are a whole lot of reasons why he might have been overstaying his time there that didn't have an affair at the root of it, but we're not going to say that it didn't happen.
1: Eventually after three years away from Rome, not three years with Nicomedes, because he didn't spend all three of those years in Bithynia, Caesar heard the news from Rome. Sulla had died. It was safe for him to return to Rome. And remember, this entire time, Caesar couldn't go back to Rome. So yeah, I kind of would want to spend that time with Nicomedes. At least you're in a safe environment.
0: And just a second, before we get into what Caesar did next, can we just talk about how Sulla died? Because it is just blowing my mind right now. I have not been able to get this out of my head. Sala was eaten by worms. Here's how Plutarch describes it. Quote, he aggravated a disease which was insignificant in its beginnings and for a long time he knew not that his bowels were ulcerated. This disease corrupted his whole flesh also and converted it into worms. This is my nightmare, Jen. I'm terrified of worms. You are terrified of worms. I'm not scared of spiders. I'm not scared of bugs, but worms just, ugh. Worms don't bother me
1: but I really don't like
0: snakes. <laughs> so, Sola, this disease corrupted his whole flesh also and converted it into worms, so that although many were employed day and night in removing them, what they took away was as nothing compared with the increase upon him. But all his clothing, baths, hand basins, and food were infected with that flux of corruption. So violent was its discharge. Therefore, he immersed himself many times a day in water to cleanse and scour his person, but it was of no use, for the change gained upon him rapidly and the swarm of of vermin defied all purification
1: could it have been like some water-based parasite that every time he was actually going into the water was making it worse?
0: Yeah, I don't know that. If anyone knows about Sulla's worms, tweet us. (laughs) But don't send images. Just send words. (laughs) Use your words. Okay, so now I've gotten that off my chest. We
1: can move on. Caesar was about 22 when he got back to Rome, and his next step was to serve as a lawyer, basically a public prosecutor. This was something high-ranking young men did to start their public careers, and I have to take a bit of a detour to talk Talk about this. These weren't professional lawyers in the way we have lawyers today. Roman attitudes towards lawyers were based on the customs of the ancient Greeks, who had a rule that people were supposed to plead for themselves in court. In practice, people tended to ask quote unquote friends for help, and these friends were usually accomplished orators who could argue persuasively for them. So, you know, if I was up for a court case, I'd probably be like, Hey, Jenny, could you argue it on my behalf? And I'd be like, Sure. And then we'd remember it was ancient Rome and we couldn't do that because we're women. In ancient Rome, it was also technically illegal to make money to represent someone in court. That didn't mean that people didn't pay their lawyers, but when it happened, it was on the down low. In the open, lawyers had to do this elaborate song and dance where they just pretended to be generous private citizens representing someone in court out of the goodness of their magnanimous and too big hearts with all of their spare time.
0: For centuries, up until the time of Claudius, this was basically the situation for lawyers in Rome. And since this profession wasn't supposed to be a profession, all you had to do was say you were a lawyer and you were one. People working in this job were usually trained in oratory, not Roman law. Could you imagine just being like, I'm a lawyer? (laughs) Just because you're really good at public speaking. So what was in it for someone like Caesar to take on this role? These trials were open to the public and a high profile trial could be a very big spectacle. Being a trial lawyer was a great way to get your face out there and demonstrate your oratory skills. In other words, it was a great starter job for ambitious young men of the aristocracy who wanted a career in politics. And you actually, we saw Germanicus doing this in Germanicus the Manicus, right? He definitely did this. He was actually a defense attorney. Orators were a thing in ancient Rome. Being a good orator was widely admired, and pretty much everyone male would be expected to speak publicly at some point in their lives. To be a good orator, you had to speak loudly and clearly so that the people in the back row could hear you. Public buildings were built with great acoustics to help you out. The famous ancient Greek orator Demosthenes was said to practice public speaking with pebbles in his mouth. You had to speak articulately. Personal charisma was also a big part of it. How you styled your hair, how you held yourself, how your toga fell, every gesture and shift of weight was precisely calculated.
1: I feel like we should try and record an episode of this podcast with pebbles in our mouth.
0: I don't think it would go very well. I know it wouldn't
1: go very well.
0: (laughs) I feel like sometimes I sound like I have pebbles in my mouth when I don't, so...
1: (laughs) Yeah, we definitely need some elocution lessons.
0: Hey, Demosthenes,
1: where are you? Where are your pebbles? So Caesar was an excellent orator, particularly his gestures. Apparently, he really liked to talk with his hands, a man after my own heart.
0: And that's the stereotype, is that the Italians talk with their hands. As an Italian gen, do you think that that stereotype is founded, in fact?
1: I think it's very much down to the person who you're speaking about and the family and where they came from in their culture. But I know that my Italian-American family do you talk with their hands. Caesar also had a high-pitched and impassioned voice. He was said to have a simple, compelling writing style that really grabbed attention. People gathered from all over the city to watch him prosecute. And here's the thing, Caesar made a very interesting choice in his legal career. Instead of being a public defender, he chose to be a public prosecutor. Now, here's why that's such an interesting choice. Being a lawyer in the public courts wasn't just a way to perform in front of the crowds. If you were to defend the rich and powerful, you could get those people indebted to you. It was a great way to build connections and get influential people to owe you favors.
0: But instead of defending the rich and powerful, which would have earned him crucial political allies, Caesar took a different path, aggressively targeting those potential allies. His specialty was going after former governors of Roman provinces on charges of corruption and- an extortion. I mean, he, he just took the path of I'm just gonna piss people off. Because he was Julius fucking Caesar. (laughs) Sorry guys, we warned you. (laughs) This was sadly very common. The way the system was set up, it didn't just encourage extortion. It practically demanded it. Candidates had to spend vast amounts on bribes and public spectacles to get popular and win votes. So most politicians in Rome were in debt up to their eyeballs. The law in Rome said you couldn't be sued or forced to pay off your debts while you were in office, but the minute your term ended, you were fair game. If you went into debt to finance your political career, and everybody did this. It was necessary to keep hopping from post to post to stay one step ahead of your creditors. Lose an election at the wrong time, and those creditors would descend on you. Would they descend on you like a bunch of sharks? Like a crowd of daddy sharks, a harbor seal. So what could happen if your creditors got a
1: hold of you? According to the 12 tables, the basis for Roman law, you had 30 days to pay back your debt. If you failed, your creditor would publicly shame you, putting you in chains for 60 days and exposing you to the public on market days with the amount of your debt announced to the world. If no one stepped forward to pay off your debt within that time, you could be sold into slavery or put to death. A lot of people became slaves because of unpaid debts. There was also a nasty Merchant of Venice style rule where if you owed multiple loans to multiple people, they could all take gouges of flesh from your body, proportionate to the amount you owed. There isn't a record of this actually happening to anyone, but in theory it could have. Unpaid debt could ruin whole families as well, because children were frequently held responsible for their parents' deaths.
0: A governorship offered about three to five years of reprieve from creditors, but it didn't offer a salary. Governors faced massive pressure to take bribes, steal from public funds, and extort the citizens, not just to enrich themselves, but to stave off creditors back home. Add to that few local checks on their power and the difficulty local people faced in traveling all the way to Rome to press charges, and what you get is a system set up to encourage corruption. Caesar went after ex-governors the minute they set foot back in Rome. And while it might look like he was shooting himself in the foot by doing this, what he was actually doing was laying the foundation for a political career as a populist following in the footsteps of his uncle Marius. By targeting the most notoriously corrupt former governors he could find, he was encouraging the common people to see him as their champion.
1: And he was good at it. Over a period of several years, Caesar did well enough to make a lot of highly placed enemies. Once again, skipping town started to look like a good idea. <laughs> was in his mid-twenties by now, and his plan was to go study with a famous order in
0: Rhodes. But he didn't get there because his ship was captured by pirates! <laughs> this is the story that made me want to do an episode about Julius
1: Caesar. I know. This is the story that made me like actually interested in the life of Julius Caesar before I was like, mm, I feel a little stabby already. But now I'm on board.
0: <laughs> Caesar was a hard sell to Jen. I had to consciously work to get her to be interested in doing a big arc on Julius Caesar. She really did. And then she busted out these pirate stories and people beating each other to death with roof tiles. Caesar saying no to solo when And he ordered him to divorce his wife. That's a good one, too. I'm one over.
1: And if you're not one over yet, just keep going. I'm telling you.
0: I think that one of the things I've noticed about how Caesar's story gets told in documentaries and stuff is that a lot of the time they start in his mid to late career and they don't cover the early stuff. And some of the early stuff is just fascinating. You start looking
1: at his career from this point where he's fully formed in this political animal and you don't actually see how he came to be that animal. And that process to me is just fascinating. Because he was on the wrong side of everything, and he did the wrong things every single time, saying no to Sulla, not divorcing his wife. His uncle had been Marius. Wow, you were
0: absolutely right, Jen. At this point in history, the Mediterranean had a serious pirate problem, and I'd love to do a whole episode on ancient pirates. Um, we'll get there. These waters used to be heavily patrolled by some serious seagoing powers, including Carthage, the Seleucid Empire, and Ptolemaic Egypt. But by this point, the first century BC, Rome had defeated these powers and left a huge power vacuum. That vacuum was filled by pirates, and these pirates could best be described as diverse groups of seagoing tribes, not politically unified, but who sometimes hung out and cooperated, and there are accounts of huge pirate fleets scouring the seas and attacking larger settlements. Oh my god, can you imagine, like, a giant pirate
1: bard party in the Mediterranean? Okay, I know what I want to do for my next big birthday. (laughs) Invite the pirates? I don't want to invite the pirates because I don't think it would go well for me. But like, let's just theme it that way.
0: <laughs> hey Jen, what's the pirate's favorite letter? R. R, you be thinking that, but it be the sea. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> you've gone into the realm of dad jokes.
0: So hiding out along the jagged coastlines and coves of Sicilia and Crete, the pirates launched raids on coastal Italian communities and kidnapped wealthy Romans for ransom. Caesar was one of their victims. These pirates figured they'd demand 20 talents for him in ransom. Uh, so Jenny, how much is 20 talents in today's money? I am so, so glad that you read that line in the script and asked me because I am going to tell you. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, I love that you think I care because I'm just like, talents, millions of dollars. I don't know. It's all the same.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like not a lot of money, right? 20 talents. It really does. And I'm also the type of person who just like glosses over those things and is like, eh? (laughs) Yeah, I'm the type of person who's like, oh my God, how much is that? So I was reading both Suetonius's and Plutarch's account of the story and in the translations I had, they both just say talents, not talents of what. But let's say they're talking gold. A single talent of gold was supposed to weigh approximately as much as a full-grown human. And this is by no means a precise unit of measurement, but let's say we're talking about a small person here, around maybe 110 pounds or 50 kilograms, because that is easier for me to handle math-wise. So the June 2018 international price of gold was about $41,155 U.S. dollars and 69 cents per kilogram. So 50 kilograms would have been, okay, this is a big number, $2,041,155 U.S. dollars. 69 cents for one talent, 20 talents would have been approximately 41155690 U.S. dollars. 20 talents of silver would have been a lot less in today's money, around half a million dollars U.S. It was either about $41 million or half a million dollars, depending on whether we're talking gold or silver talents here, just to sum up. I mean, that's a big difference. Yeah, which is why I'm a little bit surprised that I'm not seeing a lot of differentiation between gold and silver in the sources I'm looking at. I was reading some contemporary sources that say that it was talents of silver, but I wasn't sure where they were getting that because the ancient sources that I was reading weren't specifying. But it could be that it was just the translation I was reading. I don't know.
1: So the pirates told Caesar they were going to ransom him for 20 talents of gold, of silver, of myrrh, or frankincense. We don't know.
0: I didn't even get into how much myrrh and frankincense were worth in talents. I had to draw the line somewhere.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think that was actually a unit of whatever. I just threw things in there as I do. Either way, Caesar was not impressed. In fact, he laughed in their faces. And here's how Plutarch tells it. "Quote. When the pirates demanded 20 talents for his ransom, Caesar... Caesar laughed at them for not knowing who their captive was, and of his own accord agreed to give them 50. That would be around $102 million if he was asking for gold talents or $1.2 million in silver. So, either way, a lot of money, one very much more than the other. After he had sent followers to various cities to procure the money, and was left with one friend and two attendants among the pirates, most murderous of men, he held them in such disdain that whenever he laid down to sleep, he would send and order them to stop talking.
0: (laughs) I just like love that detail. They're hanging out around their campfire or whatever and he sends his retinue to go and tell them to shut up so he can sleep. I know. He's like, look, no, you can't
1: have a nice time chatting and like going over important pirate business because I'm Julius Caesar
0: and I need a nap. Because I am Julius fucking Caesar and it is time for bed. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know caesar is not all your way or the highway anyway moving on for eight and thirty days as if the men were not his watchers but his royal bodyguard he shared in their sports and exercises with great unconcern he also wrote poems and sundry speeches which he read aloud to them and those who did not admire these he would call to their faces illiterate barbarians and often laughingly threatened to crucify them all the pirates were delighted at this and attributed his boldness of speech to a certain simplicity and boyish mirth. I mean, can you imagine like if Julius Caesar read you one of his early 20s poems and it was just terrible and you're like, JC, you need to just take this down. You need to workshop it. I see potential, but right now it really is reading like a really bad diary entry. Like, just get it together. And he was just like, not having it.
0: If they give him any constructive criticism at all, he calls them illiterate barbarians.
1: No, no. He doesn't just call them illiterate barbarians. If they don't like what he's written, he's like, I'm gonna crucify you. i no, I don't want to know what you think. You like it or you get crucified. I'm Julius fucking Caesar.
0: Everybody laughed at that. They were like, oh, ha, 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 ha. ah, ha
1: ha ha Or wait, wait, wait. Arrgh. <laughs> Arrgh.
0: ha 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 ha.
1: Arg, matey, you be crucifying me.
0: (laughs) But here's the thing. Caesar sent off his traveling companions because, of course, he had a retinue to raise the money, mostly from creditors. Then, once he paid the pirates off and won his freedom, Caesar raised a fleet, turned around, and captured the pirates and crucified each and every one of them. He also captured their plunder and repaid his ransom. And as a favor to the pirates, he had their throats slit before he crucified them. What a guy. So... After this, Caesar pieced out to Rhodes for a while to study rhetoric. I mean, to be
1: fair, slitting their throats was probably a good thing because it could take you several days to die if you were crucified, just hanging out there in the Mediterranean sun, being pecked to death by animals and dying of dehydration and other things. It was not a good way to go. You might have considered it a mercy, but he also crucified them. So not so cool. Well, he did tell them that if they laughed at his poems, he would crucify them. I mean, he's got to be a man of his word. Otherwise, what's the point, Jenny? Caesar came back to Rome around 73 BC, after another three years away. Soon after, he was elected to Military Tribune, his first elected position. Military Tribunes were high-ranking officers in the Roman army, and Caesar was elected the year Spartacus rebelled against Rome. Most likely, he was serving in Italy at this time. Ancient sources usually tell us when he was posted on foreign soil, but we don't have any details about what he was doing during the Third Servile War. Sir so Jenny, what happened in the Third Servile War? I mean, I know a little bit from what I'm looking at in my Spartacus research but I can't believe that Julius Caesar wouldn't have been like involved in that conflict he got involved in everything
0: we don't have any details about what Julius Caesar was doing in the third servile war and I feel like that's a giant plot hole you know what happened Jenny a wizard did it did a wizard do it
1: a wizard sorted out that plot hole it did it in 69 BC, about four years after Caesar returned to Rome, his aunt Julia died. Julia had been the wife of Marius, and even today, the Sulla and Marius wars cast a long shadow. Not even a decade ago, being Marius's ally was a death sentence, and those in power at this time were mostly people who gained power under Sulla. Marian followers were impoverished, shell-shocked, and scattered, and they tended to keep a low profile, but secretly, around kitchen tables, among the poor and non-aristocrats. The populace marius the general with the common touch was still well loved and deeply mourned and julius caesar knew it during his aunt's funeral he displayed images of marius that hadn't seen the light of day since before Sulla's time. This caused a popular uproar. Some loudly protested these images, but the bulk of the crowd shouted the protesters down and wildly applauded Caesar for celebrating their beloved populist leader at his wife's funeral.
0: He was really putting the focus on Marius and not Julia, but this was kind of an ancient Roman thing to do because women's identities were so tied to their husbands. But let's be real, it was also a way for Caesar to aggrandize himself.
1: Yeah, something Caesar was very, very good at.
0: Caesar's wife, Wife, Cornelia died in childbirth around the same time. She would have been around twenty-eight. Caesar and Cornelia had been married for about fourteen years by this time, and while we don't know a lot about their marriage, a lot of signs point to it being more or less a happy one. Caesar gave an oration at her funeral, which was a great honor that was never given to young women. This impressed the public even more. Everyone went aw and thought Caesar was a big softie who was nice to his wife. Although I don't think he really qualifies as guy who was nice to his wife because he cheated on her a lot. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he definitely did. But I think of his
0: three wives, he might have liked this one best, but who knows? Seems that he probably did. Also, they were conveniently reminded that Caesar had defied Sulla to stay married to Cornelia more points in Caesar's favor. Soon after this, in 68 BC, Caesar was elected quaestor, an administrative position and an important rung on the political ladder. He was sent to further Spain, which was about as far away as you could get at this point and still be in the Roman Empire. And Caesar
1: was kind of in a mood at this time. Maybe the recent death of his wife and aunt reminded him of his own mortality. Either way, while he was in further Spain, he took one look at a statue of Alexander the Great and got very, very, very emotional. Alexander conquered the world at his age, he explained, and he'd done nothing particularly important with his life. And it's possible this was like Caesar's quarter-life crisis.
0: Yeah. I mean, it just goes to show you that everybody has that one person on their social feed who just makes them eat their heart out with envy. And I bet maybe Alexander envied somebody too. I don't know.
1: I guess the thing that makes me feel quite interested with this is like, if you look back in Caesar's lineage, actually Marius didn't hit his heights until he was 50. So to have this freak out at sort of what, maybe 30? Just 30?
0: I think he would have been 30.
1: Sort of makes me smile a little bit because... There's so much life ahead of you. And sometimes the big things are not going to happen when you want them to.
0: It's just such a relatable feeling because I know I've felt that way. I just think, gosh, I'm so old at this point, And what have I done with my life? I mean, we all get there.
1: There's a song that I find particularly helpful called Mountain to Move. I will send you the link so you can add it into the show notes. It's important to remember that everyone, even Julius Caesar, had someone that they're like, oh, my God, you've done so much more than me. What am I doing with my life? Everyone has that feeling. Yeah. So, after his quarter-life crisis, Caesar immediately quit his nice, safe, prestigious quaestor position and rushed back to Rome to kick things up a notch. And it's here that Julius Caesar goes from being Julius Caesar to Julius fucking Caesar.
0: Yeah, and we will tell you all about it in two weeks. That's
1: it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks. And in the meantime, come and find us on social, at AncientHistFan on Twitter and Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram and Facebook.
0: And if you like the podcast and want to help us out, we could use the support. We've got a Patreon. We mentioned this in the beginning of the episode, and now we're going to give it one last plug. Come and check out our Patreon. We'll shout you out in the episode, sign you up for movie nights, and give you the chance to vote on various things. Yeah, various things like
1: what one-off episodes I'm going to cover.
0: And uh, maybe what we watch on movie nights. Anyway, if you like the podcast but don't want to commit to a Patreon, we get it. I'm also a commitment phobe. Totally get that. You can also make a one-time contribution by kicking us a few bucks on Ko-Fi or checking out our merch. We have some awesome merch, by the way, all designed by JL Draco, and we are looking to get some more made soon. So thank you so much for your support. It means the world to us, and we will see you in two weeks.
1: can't imagine this peacock overthrowing room oh just you wait hold my drink
0: It's the third riot in the streets this week, and it's only Tuesday. You're on your way to the Via Sacra when you see it. A royal of people hard by the forum on the bleeding edge of violence. You can't tell which ones support the new consul and which ones oppose him, but you breathe in the viciousness. A naked blade flashes in someone's hand. One of them snatches up a tile that's fallen from the roof. Your guards suggest changing your route and you tell them no. You change your route for no one. This is your city. The rich man and the great man are waiting for you in the villa. The rich man has a sour face like somebody pissed in his Falernian. It's well known that in the time of the dictator, he killed the man in the prescriptions just to get his property. Now he is the richest man in Rome and money flows through his open hands. He'll lend you enough to lift the debts that break your back. But when it's time to repay him, you'd best be ready. The great man has an open face. A nice face, the kind people trust implicitly, but his business is war. He's a noted commander, the best of our time, and he walks around like he's posing for a sculpture, with his hair flowing heroically back from the prow of his forehead. He's got soldiers, enough to bully the Senate into doing whatever you want, but when the time comes to repay him, you'd best be ready. The three of you get down to terms. The great man and the rich man despise each other, but it's clear what brought them both to the table. They both believe they will own you. The rich man with his money and the great man with his might. They both think they'll have you in their pocket after this. What they don't know is that the people belong to you. You've been winning their love for years with lavish feasts and festivals, with golden bombs to the city's bleeding heart. The rich man might own half the city and the great man half the army, but you walked through a murderous mob this morning and emerged without a hair out of place. You promise them everything. With money in your palm and soldiers at your back, you will give them the world. And when the time comes to repay you, they'd best be ready. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. In our last episode, we took you through the early years of Julius Caesar's life when he refused the evil dictator Sulla's order to divorce his wife, got kidnapped by pirates, and built a reputation as a public prosecutor, deliberately going after powerful governors on charges of corruption. Go listen to that episode if you haven't first. It's very entertaining.
1: At the end of that episode, Caesar had a fateful run-in with a statue of Alexander the Great, where he realized he'd done nothing with his life by the age of 30. And I mean, I realize that all the time, Caesar, but let me tell you something. When you get over that hill of 30, life still exists. You still have things to do. You're still a valid individual. You are still a person contributing to society. I mean, get over your quarter-life crisis, and let's see what the rest of your life has in store,
0: okay? Like, just wait till you turn 35, buddy. That's all. Oh,
1: God. 30? 36. 35 was fine, 36. Oof.
0: So, in this episode, Caesar has just given up his safe, boring, quaestor position and rushed back to Rome to start kicking things up a notch. And he did that by going into debt. In 65 BC, Caesar had come back to Rome. He was elected to the position of aedile an office responsible for maintaining public buildings and throwing festivals. Caesar spent money like water. He threw lavish public feasts and gladiatorial games and put his own money into prominent public works projects. Here's how Plutarch put it. Quote, He was unsparing in his outlays of money and was thought to be purchasing a transient and short-lived fame at a great price, though in reality he was buying things of the highest value at a small price. We are told, accordingly, that before he entered upon any public office, he was 1,300 talents in debt Talents of gold or silver, big difference, Plutarch. Being appointed curator of the Appian Way, Caesar expended upon it vast sums of his own money. And again, during his aedileship, he furnished 320 pairs of gladiators. a lot of gladiators. And by lavish provision besides for theatrical performances, processions, and public banquets, he washed away all memory of the ambitious efforts of his predecessors in the office. By these means, he put the people in such a humor that every man of them was seeking out new offices and new honors with which to requite him. And that is really what he was buying here. Spending money made people love
1: Caesar. Surprise, surprise. They loved him. They did. He was elected to position after position, keeping well ahead of his creditors. Caesar also married again, this time to Pompeia, the granddaughter of Sulla. But they didn't stay married for very long. In 63 BC, at the age of 37, Caesar was elected Pontifex Maximus, the head priest of the state religion, an extremely prestigious position that came with a cushy house right in the center of town after he won his wife pompeia hosted the festival of the Dea, a chastity and fertility goddess and i really love this detail it makes me think of there's sort of a meme going around about persephone and it says don't worry about your contradictions because persephone is both a floral maiden and the goddess of death
0: Yeah, the Bonadea was a chastity and fertility goddess. It's a little confusing to me. It's a little confusing, but it's very Roman. Remember Saturn? He's both the
1: god of the harvest and also someone who ate his own babies and was a refugee. Those things
0: aren't really contradictory. They're just complex.
1: Anyway, only women were allowed to attend this festival. But a young male aristocrat snuck in dressed as a woman, allegedly to seduce Pompeia. Even though there is no evidence that he and Pompeia were ever actually involved, Caesar divorced Pompeia, Saying that the wife of Caesar had to be above all suspicion.
0: That's a far cry from his refusal to divorce Cornelia, and it also was deeply hypocritical because Caesar was not known for letting the fact that he was married stand in the way of sleeping with whoever the hell he wanted to sleep with. As an aristocratic Roman man, Caesar had a lot of options when it came to his affairs. There were a whole class of courtesans, independent and very expensive sex workers who often chose their own lovers from among the upper classes. Caesar was definitely charismatic and rich, or at least he spent. Like like he was rich enough to attract one of these. There are also plenty of brothels in Rome from downmarket to very classy that catered to every kind of taste. But
1: Caesar went after one group of women who were off limits, the wives of his senatorial colleagues. Incidentally, except for Nicomedes, Caesar wasn't known for having high-profile affairs with men, but he was known for having high-profile affairs with women. Ancient Rome was full of highly educated, wealthy, privileged, and very bored women. Their lives were severely restricted by the social mores of the times. Officially, women weren't supposed to be involved in politics at all. They were banned from entering the forum, and they weren't allowed to vote. According to Lucius Valerius Flaucus, a tribune from 195 BC, quote, no offices, no priesthoods no triumphs no spoils of war elegance adornment, finery, these are a woman's insignia. These are what our forefathers called the woman's world, quote. And I mean, I just want to like find all of the ducks feminine in history to punch him.
0: Right. Could we get some ducks Feminas to kick this guy in the head? <laughs> Agrippina, Fulvia, Agrippina the Elder. <laughs> get all the ducks Femina to like throw rotten vegetables at this guy until he shuts up. Senators' wives were frequently left alone for months or years while their husbands were at war. They were vital, young, smart, energetic, and just as ruthlessly ambitious as their husbands. Some of them became experts at getting around the social rules that bound them. They were often relentless in maneuvering behind the scenes to promote the careers of the men in their families, thus raising their own status. The Roman historian Sallust was about 14 years younger than Caesar, from the same aristocratic class, and the oldest known Roman historian whose works we still have. He gives us a very clear description of what these women were like. Quote, Now among these women was Sempronia, who had often committed many crimes of masculine daring because to be daring meant to be masculine. You couldn't be feminine and daring.
1: Oh, no, never.
0: In birth and beauty, in her husband and also children, she was abundantly favored by fortune, well read in the literature of Greece and Rome, able to play the lyre and dance more skillfully than an honest woman need, whatever that means. Oh, it was all about the hips. The hips don't lie. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you clarified that for us. (laughs) And having many other accomplishments which ministered to voluptuousness, which I
1: guess means that she had a great rack. It's having great curves. She had dangerous curves, excellent dancer, and she had a bang in mind. That's probably what the most scary thing was for these men.
0: But there was nothing which she held so cheap as modesty and chastity. So she was also the boss of herself, which is terrible because we're in ancient Rome. And she knew how to show off her curves. Oh, my God. You could not easily say whether she was less sparing of her money or her honor. Her desires were so ardent that she sought men more often than she was sought by them. She had often broken her word, repudiated her debts, been privy to murder. Poverty and extravagance combined had driven her headlong. Nevertheless, she was a woman of no mean endowments. She could write verses, bandy jests, and use language which was modest or tender or wanton. In fine, she possessed a high degree of wit and of charm. Here we have... A very clear description of Caesar's type. Yeah, and let's be honest, Jenny, she was kind of badass,
1: except the murder thing.
0: Yeah, we don't condone murder, but other than that, she sounds like a lot of fun. She does. She sounds like, (laughs) she sounds like you were me.
1: (laughs) Right. Caesar's lovers were wives of some of the most powerful, highly placed men in Rome. They were all extremely influential in their own right. One of these late Republic movers and shakers was Servilia, a patrician from a very old and respected family. And of all the Roman women Caesar had affairs with, Servilia was the one that stuck. Caesar and Servilia had an affair lasting 20 years. They first hooked up around 64 BC while he was still married to Pompeia. It was one of those relationships that ebbed and flowed, but it was very intense. Caesar and Servilia were the same kind of animal, political, ambitious, and not bound by monogamy. Servilia also had a husband who was definitely not Caesar. Suetonius tells us that Caesar loved Servilia beyond all others. One time, Caesar wooed her with a black pearl worth about six million in today's money. Good pick, Caesar. Like, black pearls? Amazing. Caesar also acquired a very valuable property that he sold to Servilia for a rock-bottom price. Allegedly, Servilia also let Caesar sleep with her youngest daughter as part of this deal, which I have so many questions.
0: It's one of those rumors that are alluded to in the sources. It's like Agrippina sleeping with Nero. In letters! <laughs> in the litter. It's like kind of a salacious rumor that there probably was no grounding in this, but it was making the rounds. Some more modern historians speculate as to why Caesar would take the risk of sleeping with all these married women, because being accused of adultery could ruin a man's political career, not to mention it was a great way to make a whole slew of undying political enemies. But... Also, in a way, it makes total sense. I don't think it was the thrill of the illicit or the only place Caesar could get sex. The women were the back channel. We've been talking about this a lot. Caesar was using his sexuality to gain influence with powerful political fixers who worked behind the scenes because he had a magic D. We have to talk about the magic D. Do we have to talk about the magic D? Yes, we do. You see the magic D pop up when you get into Sejanus and Lepidus. We've talked about men who use their sexuality for power and influence in some of our other episodes and it's Sort of this toxic masculinity cliche that's associated with women a lot of the time, you know, sleeping your way to the top. But a lot of men in ancient Rome slept their way to the top. When you've got people who have information and
1: power and influence who are not given a voice and are denied the ability to impact change in a public way, then you will always have a back channel.
0: Right. And the back channel in ancient Rome isn't written about as much in the ancient sources. It's still a little bit shadowy, but you do get intriguing flashes of it. And you can see Caesar working the back channel here. Yeah, and I think
1: it's really important to remember that Caesar at this point in time is making a name for himself, but he's still the nephew of Marius. He's got a lot of work to do to repair that reputation and to become the guy that we're going to see in future episodes
0: you see him being absolutely ruthless because he's divorcing his wife at a breath of scandal but he's also courting scandal himself and he's taking that risk because it directly benefits him pompeia's scandal didn't benefit him so he was just like she has to go
1: exactly and it's possible she had other ambitions she was a person who had wants and needs and caesar let's be honest was all about caesar
0: Yeah, Caesar was all about Caesar and he needed a wife who was all about Caesar. So that may have been the reason, the real reason why he divorced her. But this is all speculation. Who knows? It's
1: all speculation. We don't know the answer. So don't quote us. If you're writing a history paper using us as a resource, why?
0: Why would you do that? Why, Slenderman, why? Don't use this us as a resource for your <laughs> thesis in history. It's like not a good idea.
1: Clearly don't use this. Us. We're here for your infotainment. <laughs> Moving on, the year 63 BC was big for Caesar. He was 37 years old at this point. He was winning the love of the people, spending money like water, wearing his belt loose and his tunic fringed and cultivating his back channel. If you know what I mean. And then the Catiline Conspiracy happened. Cataline was, in many ways, basically an off-brand Caesar.
0: Like Jen's off-brand Cheetos.
1: No, guys, I'm going to tell you this, just like off-brand Caesars, off-brand Tito's are not things that you want to have.
0: Don't have the off-brand Caesar. Have the real Caesar, or no Caesar at all. (laughs) What does that mean? I don't know. (laughs) But that's a hill we're dying on right now. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Here are all the similarities between Caesar and off-brand Caesar. One, Catiline was from a minor family on the outskirts of power. Two, he positioned himself as a populist. Three, he was known for his promiscuity with both men and women. And four, he spent vast sums of money to win over the populace and was deeply in debt. Catiline had a lot of violent rumors swirling about him, like that he killed his own teenage son because his new wife didn't like the son. During the cellar years, he'd apparently marched through the streets waving the head of his own brother-in-law because that's the
0: kind of guy he was. One interesting thing about this time period is that a lot of people who were in public office now had been involved in the Sulla prescriptions and probably had stories like that in their background as well.
1: Oh, yeah. He took that head down to the Rasta and got himself his brother-in-law's property and everything else he wanted.
0: Both Catiline and Caesar ran for Praetor around this time. They didn't run for the same Praetor position. There were multiple ones open. Caesar won his election and Catiline lost his. And you have to ask yourself, if Caesar had lost his election and his creditors had descended on him, would he have ended up like Catiline? Maybe. Maybe. In some ways, winning elections in Rome is like playing musical chairs. If the music stopped and you were out, your creditors would descend on you like a flock of hungry sharks, ready to gouge out your eyeballs with their shark teeth. Terrifying. The music stopped for Catiline, and he did something drastic. He plotted to take over the world. There are a
1: lot of moving pieces to the Catiline conspiracy, which I'm not going to get into because it's kind of beyond the purview of this episode. Suffice it to say that like Caesar, Catiline was very aware of the power of the female back channel. Sallust reports that one part of Catiline's plan involved winning the support of the former expensive female courtesans who'd grown too old to practice their craft, but who still had bills to pay. And...
0: So there's some issues with that. I feel like probably you could be a lot older than you would think and still be able to be a very successful courtesan.
1: I mean, let's be honest, if you are making it in that world as a female courtesan,
0: you could rack up quite a lot of wealth and you could do it for quite a long time. My sense of things is that there are sex workers practicing at all ages who do really well. And maybe Catiline was misunderstanding his audience here. Catiline had a
1: hope that with the help of the aging courtesans, he could, quote unquote, tempt the city slaves
0: to his side
1: and set fire to Rome and then either attach the woman's husbands to his cause or make away with them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's such a confusing plot. So he was going to have the the courtesans seduce the slaves to come to his side, or then he was going to kidnap them. I think it's just so confusing. He's going to get the courtesans
1: to get the slaves on board, but he's not going to use the courtesans who sleep with the men of the aristocracy, who could give him actual news. And then once he has got everyone to revolt, he's going to take the wives of the wealthy husbands and abscond with them? That makes no sense to me.
0: Maybe this is why Catiline didn't do so well, because his plot was really wacky. Exactly. It makes as much sense as a wacky collapsible boat. (laughs) Right. And we've been there.
1: (laughs) Catiline plotted to slaughter a bunch of senators and to take over the government, Sulla style. But it didn't work out. When the plot was discovered, Catalan fled the city and raised an army. He later died on the battlefield. Five of his supporters were arrested, and the Senate came down hard on these supporters.
0: People were, in general, on a hair trigger about this whole taking over the government thing. Kings were the devil. They'd always been the devil. But right now, it was personal. Everyone remembered the heads in the forum and Sulla's crappy list. Everyone had PTSD from this. Not even the Sullen supporters wanted to go back to that time. Nobody was in the mood to show these people any mercy or even any due process. And this is where Cicero comes into our story. Cicero, who ruined junior high for Jen. (laughs)
1: Really did. I took
0: Latin from seventh grade until eleventh
1: grade, and I did eight years of Latin in seven or six. Not because I was good at Latin, but because as you went up in levels, less and less people took it, so they just combined the classes. So eventually, I was in an AP Latin class, and I was like, I am definitely a solid B to C student. I don't know what I'm doing in this class.
0: Maybe you're giving your Not enough credit. No, I'm giving myself exactly the amount of credit I deserve.
1: (laughs) So, anyway, Cicero, who ruined my junior high because I had to translate so many of his speeches, was an up and coming politician and about six years older than Caesar. And whereas oratory was just one tool in the Caesar toolbox, Cicero was a specialist oratory was his superpower. It's said that his skills as a Latin prose stylist had a profound effect not just on the Latin language itself, but on European languages up until the 1800s, as writers in English, French, German, and other languages held him up as a standard and tortured children in junior high school and high school for generations
0: to come. Jen has PTSD from junior high like so many of us, but most of us don't have Cicero-related PTSD. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so
1: here are some fun facts about Cicero. His name meant chickpea. Plutarch tells us that this was because of an ancestor of his had a cleft in his nose, making it look like a little chickpea. But... It also may have been that Cicero's family wealth came from prosperous chickpea farming. I bet they made good hummus.
0: You know what? You said in one of our past episodes about Cicero that he had an ancestral chickpea farm, but it sounded like you said an incestuous chickpea farm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know what the chickpeas got up to, but, you know, ancient Rome wouldn't surprise me. Really kinky chickpeas on this chickpea farm. Sorry, guys. Anyway, interestingly, having a name like Chickpea, wasn't that weird? Other renowned names had roots in agricultural crops. For instance, Piso meant pea, and fabius means beans, and lentilus meant
0: lentil. There were a lot of people with names that harken back to an agricultural root of some kind. So
1: Plutarch tells us that when Cicero entered politics, friends suggested he change his name. But he doubled down, declaring he'd elevate the name Cicero far above the names of other politicians like Scarus, a famous politician from the previous generation, whose name meant, I love this so much, swollen ankled.
0: <laughs> so that was the quality that made him stand out was his ankles. <laughs>
1: But wait, this one's even better. And Catullus, a commander in the First Punic War whose name meant Poppy! Can you imagine me, your city being sacked by (laughs) puppies?
0: Oh, we're being attacked by the puppy
1: cuddles. (laughs) I mean, I wish it was actual puppies because that would be the cutest ever sacking, but it was not like that. Listen to our first two episodes. It was not like that.
0: Right. Sackings were not cute, but maybe there were some sackings in the Punic War we didn't cover that involved a lot of puppies, and it would have been adorable. Puppy cuddles. (laughs) So Cicero also served as a lawyer early in his career. His first case was a doozy, defending someone against patricide, which was a really serious crime in ancient Rome. They really did not like it when you killed your dad. As part of his defense, he accused other prominent people of the murder, people who were close friends with Sulla, which was a baller move. He won his case, too, but he had to skip town afterwards. Cicero
1: was a champion of the traditional republic, and a foil for Caesar. Where Caesar was a radical populist. Cicero grounded his philosophy in ancient Roman values. Caesar bucked the rules at every opportunity. Cicero followed them to the letter. The two worked closely together and were often at odds, but they were also sometimes friends or frenemies. I bet they were good frenemies.
0: They were frenemies, yeah.
1: According to Plutarch, Cicero once said of Caesar that, quote, a tyrannical purpose was evident in most of Caesar's political plans and projects. On the other hand, he said, when I look at his exquisitely arranged hair and see him scratching his head with one finger, I find it impossible to believe that this man could ever conceive of so great a crime as to overthrow the Roman constitution, End quote.
0: I really love that quote because it's such a fun human detail. This is somebody who knew Caesar, was very close friends with Caesar, and he knew him as a human being.
1: Yeah, and I love the idea that he's like his meticulously put together appearance, scratching his head with one finger. Like, I love that he's like, I look at this guy and he's so put together. Everything is very made up for his public image. He's not the kind of guy who would overthrow Rome.
0: And here he is behaving like kind of a doofus. And I can't, I can't imagine him overthrowing Rome. I can't imagine this peacock overthrowing Rome. Oh, just you wait, hold my drink. I gotta hold my drink, says Julius fucking Caesar.
1: Exactly. So at this moment, in the Catiline conspiracy, Cicero happened to be serving as consul, the highest position in the land. And he was out for blood. Rule breaking really ground Cicero's gears, this time enough to break the rules himself.
0: Right, because this particular rule breaking involved overthrowing the state and installing the devil... Yeah.
1: But also, as we talked about in our Saturnalia episode, Cataline planned this whole conspiracy to run over Saturnalia. And I'm just going to say, if you mess with my Saturnalia, then I will be out for
0: blood. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense to do something like this during Saturnalia, which we talked about in that episode, because the rules were relaxed and you could do things and get away with things and go places that you couldn't necessarily do and get away with during normal times. Well, yeah, totally.
1: But also it's my Saturnalia. So one time a year I get to let Saturn
0: loose and party. Sometimes when you let Saturn loose, he tries to overthrow your government. You just have to accept that as part of the holiday. I mean, it is true. Cicero wanted the
1: conspirators executed right away without even a trial. And it wasn't supposed to work like that. That wasn't Roman justice. Each of the accused was supposed to get a trial and a lawyer and a chance to appeal his case. Caesar was the one who called for mercy.
0: Here's how it went down according to Plutarch. After the Catalan conspirators had been overwhelmingly convicted in the Senate and Cicero the consul asked each senator to give his opinion on the matter of their punishment, the rest, down to Caesar, urged that they be put To death, But Caesar rose in his place and delivered a long and studied speech against this. He pleaded that to put to death without legal trial men of high rank and brilliant lineage was not, in his opinion, traditional or just, except under extremist necessity, but that if they should be bound and kept in custody until the war against Catiline had been brought to a successful end, because remember, Catiline escaped and now was raising an army, the Senate could afterwards, in a time of peace and at their leisure, vote upon the case of each one of them. This opinion seemed so and the speech in support of it made with such power that not only those who rose to speak after Caesar sided with him, but many also of those who had preceded him took back the opinions which they had expressed and went over to his. Cicero
1: thought about it. In fact, he agonized over it all night. That night, his wife, Terentia, was performing the festival of the Bonadea in his house with a group of Vestal virgins. We come back to the festival of the Bonadea.
0: <laughs> Once again, the Bonadea fucks shit up. A fire that was believed to be out
1: suddenly blazed forth and the Vestals interpreted it as a sign that the conspirators should indeed be put to death immediately. Terentia was the one who carried the news to Cicero. He had them put to death the next day without due process. I included this anecdote because it's a great example of how the back channel could work. Cicero's wife, Terentia, was heavily involved in politics and frequently influenced her husband this way. This time, her agenda was death penalty. Do not pass go. Do not collect 200 talents of gold or silver, but probably silver because that would be weird if it was gold.
0: It would be a lot of money if it was gold. So women sometimes influence the men around them directly Through actual conversations, but the toxic masculinity in ancient Rome was rank. And if you haven't figured that out by now, we are not doing our jobs. Direct influence wasn't always a winning strategy because of all that toxic masculinity. And you do see this when we talked about Agrippina and other powerful women. And a lot of the time, when they went directly headlong against male powers of the patriarchy, bad things happened to them. Like they got undermined, they got exiled, they got murdered. They got exiled and then beaten so badly, they lost an eye. That was Agrippina the Elder, and we talk about that in Germanicus the Manicus. But it it just shows you that it was a risk sometimes trying to influence men directly. However, these men were often superstitious, and the women understood how religion affected politics, the public, and the individual psyches of the men they wanted to persuade. A woman who was involved in religion had a very useful tool in her back pocket for influencing superstitious men. And we saw Caesar's mom, Aurelia, use this strategy to save her son's life with Sala. Sometimes working the back channel required a delicate touch, borrowing the authority of the gods to influence these really superstitious men. And you see Tarentia doing that here. So, despite Caesar's best efforts, he was outmaneuvered by Terentia and the Catiline conspirators were immediately sent to the Mamertine prison to be executed. And I just have to go on a teensy little tangent about the Mamertine prison. It was just a hole in the ground that had originally been a cistern for a spring, it was a horrible pit. Prisoners were lowered into the black pit and then strangled to death. All five of these co-conspirators died this way without any due process. Even if all the accused were guilty, it was a great miscarriage of justice.
1: Can I ask you a question about this Mamertine prison?
0: Why lower them
1: into a pit in the ground if you're only going to strangle them? And then how did they strangle them?
0: I think it was a a really nasty garrotting. So did they then bring them up to strangle them? No, no. They lowered them down into the horrible pit and strangled them. But when did the strangling happen? Was somebody down there already to strangle them? I'm assuming there was someone down there. There's a head strangler. <laughs> there was a head
1: strangler down in the memory. T- this is literally just for me. I can't get my brain around it. You know, and you're just like, but who was doing the strangling? Like, <laughs> like, how do you get into there to strangle? Like, <laughs> I have so many questions.
0: Like, was there a head strangler? <laughs> was he already down there? There was a rope ladder. There's a lot we don't know. Anyway,
1: Caesar paid a price for his calls for mercy. Cato, the tribune of the plebs, in many ways another foil for Caesar, a severe moralist who avoided all forms of vice, tried to implicate him in the conspiracy. Cicero's bodyguards even threatened Caesar's life. Suddenly, Caesar was in a very precarious position. He had to defend himself physically and defend against the accusations of conspiracy at the same time after just seeing five men led off to be strangled for the same charge, with zero due process. But he'd spent a fortune winning the love of the public, and now it paid off. An angry mob surrounded the building, demanding that Caesar be released. The mob was so violent that Cato not only let Caesar go, but talked the Senate into granting the rioters an expensive monthly allowance of grain just to calm them down.
0: So that was Caesar's praetorship. It was an eventful year. When the praetorship ended in 62 BC, Caesar landed a plum position, governor of ulterior Spain, where he'd had his fateful quarter-life crisis conversation with the statue of Alexander the Great. He'd had his life-changing quarter-life prices,
1: mountain-to-move
0: moment, he set himself on course. Right. There was a problem with this new job, though. There was a small window of time between when his praetorship ended and his governorship began when Caesar was a private citizen, and that meant his creditors were going to descend on him like vultures on a steaming carcass. And this is where Crassus comes into the story. Here, are some fun facts about Crassus. Crassus was basically the very wealthy daddy shark of ancient Rome. There were other rich people in Rome for sure, but Crassus owned most of them. By some estimates, his fortune in today's dollars would have been about 9 billion US dollars.
1: Crassus was said to have made the start of his fortune by killing another wealthy man during Sulla's prescriptions. His victim's name was not originally on the list. Crassus added it himself, probably in his victim's blood.
0: Yeah, Crassus was the ancient Roman version of a realistic state magnate. He owned teams of slaves specially trained to flip houses. I am not actually kidding. His slaves included architects, builders, and even a brigade of firefighters because ancient Rome had no dedicated state-funded firefighters at this point. Here's how it would go down. Ancient Rome was seriously flammable. The neighborhoods were densely packed with narrow streets and extremely fire-friendly building materials. People cooked indoors with fire, used candles and lamps all the time, and there was no official fire brigade like we said. The whole city was basically a fiery death trap.
1: So Crassus would wait for a fire to start and then sweep in and buy buildings in the path of the fire before they burned. Then he'd call in his trusty firefighters who'd stop the fire just to preserve Crassus's buildings. He'd send in his builders and architects to lovingly restore any damaged buildings, put all the modern fixtures in, give it, you know, those marble countertops and everything else you've been dreaming of. And then he'd turn around and sell these properties at a premium to wealthy buyers. You gotta wonder if he might have been setting those fires himself.
0: I had that exact same
1: thought. Totally. And then I'm guessing he bought the buildings that burned down at a rock bottom price and then just restored them.
0: Right. Because when you have a fire bearing down on your house and you're about to lose everything you have, you're not going to quibble over pricing. Exactly. Crassus also had other ways of making money. He owned silver mines. He sold slaves, which is terrible. Crassus was a terrible person. In addition to being disturbingly rich, Crassus was a very effective general. He'd been the one to defeat Spartacus and the server War, and we're giving this its own episode, but suffice it to say... Yeah, we are!
1: <laughs> Sorry, I'm very excited about that episode.
0: You're gonna get a lot more Crassus. You didn't ask for more Crassus, but you're gonna get more Crassus.
1: <laughs> you didn't ask for more Crassus, you don't think you need more Crassus, but you're getting more Crassus. <laughs>
0: you're g- getting more Crassus, <laughs> is what we're serving up. But anyway, suffice it to say that Crassus was an absolutely brutal general in ending that war, ordering 6,000 of Spartacus' followers to be crucified along the Appian way, their throats were not cut first. And another fun detail about Crassus, Caesar was sleeping with his wife. Yeah, he was. Because <laughs> he is Julius fucking Caesar. And put this on the fucking there. It really works on all
1: kinds of levels. So what Caesar did was basically consolidate his loans with the Bank of Crassus. Before, he was owned by a whole bunch of people who could gouge out his flesh but didn't. And now, Daddy Crassus owned him.
0: Yeah, like, Sally Mae owns the rest of
1: us. Yes. And Crassus was not doing this out of the goodness of his heart, because I think it should be blindingly obvious, Crassus did not do things out of the goodness of his heart, assuming he had one. He wanted Caesar's political help, specifically against a major political enemy. Jenny, what's a pirate's worst enemy? Um, Pompey? pompy <laughs> shark i mean pompy
0: pompy shark Pumpy shark. i think that's the first time we've actually done it somewhat in sync i know we're not capable of doing things in sync who was pompy shark you asked i am so glad you asked because now we're going to explain this to you i mean literally no one asked i didn't even ask I'm still going to explain it to you, though. You know? um, if, if Caesar hadn't existed, Pompey Shark would have probably been known as the greatest military shark mind of his age. <laughs> <laughs> he was six years older than Caesar, and at this point in history, he was the Republic's golden shark. I mean, I'm going to stop with the shark now. Yeah, I need you to start with the shark. At least for a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to stop. I might bring it back later. He was the Republic's golden boy. His father had also been a general, fighting for Sulla during the Civil War. He was known as Strabo the Butcher. Nobody liked him.
1: But people really, really did like Pompey. Here's how Plutarch describes him. Quote, he had a countenance which helped him in no small degree to win the favor of the people, and which pleaded for him before he spoke. <laughs> I, can't, I gotta take a minute for that.
0: Why does it say it like that? We don't know. We didn't write it. I
1: just have to... I'll be okay. Just give me a minute. For even his boyish loveliness had a gentle dignity about it. And in the prime and flower of his youthful beauty... Swoon! There was at once manifest the majesty and kingliness of his nature. His hair was inclined to lift itself slightly from his forehead. And this, with a graceful contour of face about the eyes swoon, (laughs) produced a resemblance to the portrait statues of King Alexander. So yeah, if I was Caesar and I had my transcendent emotional breakdown in front of a statue of Alexander the Great and now Pompey looks like him, yeah, I'd be having a little bit of a freak out.
0: It's not just that he looked like him, it's that people kept saying loudly and at length how much Pompey looked like Alexander the Great and reminded them of Alexander the Great and was probably the reincarnated avatar of Alexander the Great. Yeah, if I was Caesar, yeah, my anxiety
1: and stress level and everything else would be through the roof. Ever since Pompey had started leading armies into battle in his early 20s, the comparisons to Alexander the Great started flying fast and furiously.
0: Poppy and Alexander the Great are virtually indistinguishable. Everyone keeps confusing them with each other in public. And Caesar's like, but what about me,
1: guys? And they're like, sorry. No. Don't I look like Alexander the Great? Your hair is thinning a little bit. God
0: damn it with the freaking hair!
1: (laughs) (laughs) By this time around 62 BC Pompey had one cleaned up large-scale rebellions for Sulla in his early 20s opening up a new route through the Alps along the way and prompting Sulla to add the Great to his name. So now he's Pompey the Great. Two he took care of the Mediterranean's intractable pirate problem within a few months without getting taken hostage even resettling 20,000 pirates so they wouldn't turn to piracy again. Take that, Caesar.
0: Thus earning the moniker Pompey Shark, the Great. The Great. (laughs)
1: And three, ended the war with Mithridates, which had been going on and off and on and off and on and off for 25 years and had broken other very capable Roman commanders.
0: That's why he's Pompey Shark the Great. More fun facts about Pompey. He was often depicted with his hair blowing back in the wind. If you see a bust of Pompey, it's got this widow's peak right in the front of his forehead, which Caesar was blindingly jealous of because he was thinning a little bit on top. And I think that this widow's peak is supposed to represent Pompey standing landing in a wind tunnel or on the prow of a ship or something. His father, Strabo, Strabo the Butcher. I know, I know, I know. It's just ridiculous. That's what his name was. People called him that.
1: I know. His father, Strabo the Butcher, was almost killed by his own troops one time. Pompey, then a teenager, threw himself at their feet, weeping and demanding that they trample on him to get to his dad. It worked. Strabo died a week later, struck by lightning during a siege, which I mean, so much better, Caesar, than your dad dying putting on his shoes. Going out by lightning or putting on your shoes.
0: Well, it just goes to show that nobody liked Strabo the Butcher, including the gods. But at least it was a dramatic exit. Exactly! (laughs) Pompey was one of those people Sulla ordered to divorce his existing wife and marry someone else. Unlike Caesar, Pompey went along with this, but his new wife, Sulla's stepdaughter, died in childbirth basically five minutes after they were married. She was pregnant with her former husband's child.
1: Crassus did the bulk of the work winning the third servile war against Spartacus, but Pompey showed up late in the game and mopped up some fleeing fugitives. Then he went back to Rome and claim the credit for winning the entire war. And this might be the root of why Crassus and Pompey hated each other. And to be honest, I would not be cool with that Pompey. That is not something that would make me think you're the great. It would be like, yeah, Pompey the late. Pompey the little shit. Crassus thought Pompey was a little shit. Well, you can't blame him there. I mean, he did all that work and all that expense to like sort out Spartacus's rebellion. And then Pompey's like, I'm going to round up these harmless people fleeing who may or may not have even be part of the rebellion rebellion and say I did all the work and I'm gonna take all the credit
0: triumph me In 67 BC, when the Senate assigned Pompey to go take care of the Mediterranean's pirate problem, they gave him control over the entire Mediterranean plus dominion over land 50 miles inland. He also got 500 ships and the power to take as much money from the treasury as he wanted. That was how big a problem the pirates were. Putting this much power in a single general's hands made some senators twitchy. So much so that an opposing faction tried to kill him in the Senate House. Pompey had to strenuously object to the command and then pretend to accept it reluctantly, basically to save his own life. Caesar was one of the few who supported him. And Caesar was right to support Pompey because Pompey pretty much cleared out the pirate problem in the Mediterranean in like 40 days or something. The thing is, Caesar was also sleeping with Pompey's wife. (laughs) Caesar had the magic D. (laughs)
1: Because we did tell you it was Julius fucking Caesar. (laughs) (laughs) Pompey and Crassus despised each other. Between 70 and 69 BC, they served together as consuls and argued constantly about every single thing and got nothing done. And again, that sounds so familiar.
0: Could you imagine if you and I were consuls together,
1: Jen? (laughs) Oh, it would be awful. There's no way you and I could rule anything. We can't even rule this podcast. (laughs) Actually, think we're doing pretty good job ruling this podcast. I think we'd do awesome. We would probably need some therapy to make sure that, like, we didn't, like, ruin our friendship over it, but...
0: I mean, all we'd have to do is accept the fact that I'm the boss, and then we'd do awesome. Oh, you're the boss and I'm the dog's body. I get how it is. (laughs) (laughs) What's a dog's body?
1: Dog's body is a very British phrase, I guess. It just means someone who does all the legwork, all the hard lifting, and you get to get the credit and be the commander. I'm the idea
0: person. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) That's how our consulship would go.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you see, Pompey, it would not go well for you, because I think you know where I'm going. I'm not Crassus. I'm Julius Caesar. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs)
0: Moving on. <laughs> I'm not even going to go there.
1: Yeah, so Caesar consolidated his student loans at the Bank of Crassus, pledged his future support against Pompey, and then immediately skipped town because that's what you do.
0: <laughs> I'm sensing a theme here and it's skipping town. When he got to Hispania Ulterior,
1: he looked around and went, shit. This place is full of bandits. And you see that was the good news because if there weren't bandits there already, Caesar would have had to manufacture some.
0: Caesar had made his career prosecuting corrupt governors for using their provinces as their personal ATM machines. But now he was in their position. The tables had turned. And he had just as much debt as they did, if not more. Instead of cashing in on his governorship though, he went after a much more socially acceptable way of making money. At least to the ancient Romans, he turned his attention to this bandit problem, quote-unquote. Caesar immediately set about increasing the local army and then marched it into the hills of Iberia, nimbly avoiding ambush and defeating stronghold after stronghold. And if this looks like a magnanimous thing to do to protect the populace, think again. What Caesar may have been doing was using this whole bandit excuse as a pretext to raid local non-Roman communities and take their loot, an alternative to plundering his own province. Suetonius even tells us that he let his armies sack towns even when they surrendered peacefully.
1: But this campaign also gave his troops plenty of opportunity to plunder and they love this so much they declared him Imperator. They loved plundering! And we've talked about plundering before in How to Survive a Siege and stuff
0: and it is not...
1: Okay.
0: When an invading army attacked a city, there would be sexual assault on a wide scale. There would be murder on a wide scale. There would be taking people as slaves. And there would be a lot of theft and taking everybody's livelihood. It was a devastating thing to happen to a community.
1: Being declared emperor was a big thing for Caesar because it qualified him to ask the Senate for a triumph. And as we all know, all any man wants in the ancient world is a triumph, a military parade where he gets to go through the streets and everyone throws the ancient world ticker tape at them and it makes them feel like they've done a great job. We've talked about triumphs in the past. This was a self-aggrandizing parade that generals got to throw when they had a really important victory. We haven't gone into it in detail, but now it's kind of relevant to this story. The triumph was the absolute highest honor to which a general of Rome could possibly aspire. And triumphs were rare. A lot of really accomplished generals lived their whole lives without being granted one. Only the Senate could grant a triumph. You had to apply, and you only qualified once you'd won a spectacular victory against a foreign enemy, and your troops had declared you...
0: Imperator! You are Imperator! And then you got to say, triumph me, please! One triumph, table one! I'm turning in my triumph table. To- <laughs> <laughs> to the Senate. <laughs> I'm turning in my Triumph paperwork. (laughs) You'll see everything is in line. If you were lucky enough to be granted a Triumph, it would most likely be a -a once-in-a-lifetime honor, and here's how it would go down. At the first light of day, you'd gather with your army in the Field of Mars. This is outside the ceremonial boundary of the city. Generals with an army were not allowed to cross this boundary until their triumph, so as not to trigger fears about Sulla-style takeovers, because that was very triggering. But as the conquering general, you got to aggrandize yourself in ways not normally allowed. For instance, by painting your face red and wearing a laurel crown and the toga picta or painted toga, which was dyed solid purple with a golden stripe.
1: The purple dye was really expensive to make.
0: Later, this type of toga was used exclusively by emperors. In the time of the Republic, it marked you out as close to gods and kings.
1: Your parade would then wind through the narrow streets of Rome.
0: Everyone in the city
1: would turn out to see you thronging the streets, crowding the rooftops, and hanging out of windows. Throwing flower petals, burning, incest bearing, breasts, ancient world confetti, it was all for you. You were a rock star, and everybody treated you like one. They'd throw their bras, they'd have their lighters going, it was amazing. So, first would come your defeated enemy, generals, kings, and leaders from the other side that you'd captured in battle and didn't kill for this particular purpose, and their families would be walking in chains. And this might include women and children. Then would come the loot gold and silver, statues, furniture, money, and anything of value that your army stripped from the vanquished people. Then would come the senators and magistrates of Rome, walking on foot, your bodyguards, and then you, the glorious conquering general, riding a chariot drawn by horses. In your full triumphal regalia, your face painted red, a slave would ride in your
0: chariot behind you, whispering in your ear, remember you are mortal. Because after all this, presumably you need reminding. So after that comes your army, all decked out in their battle gear, singing rowdy songs at your expense. Caesar's legions used to sing a song about how the citizens of Rome should lock up their wives because, quote, here comes the bald adulterer. I love how they were singing about Caesar's magic D and his triumph. <laughs> yes! It's like,
1: it's like they knew exactly what he was and they were not afraid to tell the world. Oh, they
0: knew. <laughs> Everyone knew about the Magic day. Last would come two pure white oxen with gilded horns and flowers around their necks, destined for sacrifice at the feet of the statue of Jupiter, because it sucks to be a pure white ox in ancient Rome. This parade would wind its way through the streets of Rome. On the way, you'd stop at the Mamertine prison to drop off your war prisoners. These would usually be strangled, sometimes down in the horrible hole, and sometimes in front of the whole populace. Then, you'd make your way to the Temple of Jupiter on the Capitoline Hill, where you'd sacrifice to the god. There might also be several several days of games and feasts. Frequently, large triumphal arches, theaters, and other ornate buildings were raised to commemorate the occasion.
1: Generals were supposed to behave with humility and dignity during their own triumphs. In fact, the whole time, the Senate would be watching you very, very carefully to make sure that you didn't exhibit the signs of wanting to be a king for more than a day. But make no mistake, a triumph was the pinnacle of a general's career. Pompey Shark the Great, incidentally, had three. That's how much of a golden boy he was.
0: And Caesar was eating his heart out the whole time. Absolutely. Caesar needed
1: this triumph because if he doesn't get it, he's three behind. He's got to close that gap. He's already
0: way behind Alexander the Great and way behind Pompey Shark the Great. And he just, he needs a triumph. He's desperate for a triumph. And let's be honest... He's done with
1: quarterlife life crisis and moving into midlife life crisis territory. Pompey's last triumph was granted in 61 BC after finally defeating Mithridates. It had taken two whole days for Pompey's triumph to wind through the streets. The loot on display included 75 million silver drachmae, more than the entire tax revenue of the Republic for a year, A solid gold statue of Mithridates, 12 feet tall, and enough golden gem-encrusted vessels to fill nine display cabinets and to
0: make my little magpie heart sing. Jen's in, like, the audience of the Triumph going, whoa! (laughs) And we're not done. There was also a gaming board three feet by four feet made of two types of precious stones. On this board was a solid gold moon weighing 30 pounds because what else are you going to put on your giant gaming board? And we're still not done.
1: There were also 33 pearl adorned crowns. Oh, my heart a bust of Pompey made entirely of pearls, which, how?
0: Why did Mithridates have a bust of Pompey in his house made of pearls? You have to ask yourself this. And this was a bust,
1: presumably, with his hair blowing back in the wind.
0: Yeah, that's how you know it's Pompey Shark, (laughs) because he's in a wind tunnel. (laughs) Yes,
1: exactly. And bizarrely, this is a tad hard picture, a, quote, square mountain of gold with stags upon it, lions, and all kinds of fruit surrounded with a vine of gold. And Jenny, you might have to resuscitate me.
0: She's having a little magpie freak out right now. I'm a little concerned. (laughs)
1: So that's the sense of the scale and self-aggrandizement of a triumph. If you had an ancestor who'd earned one, that would be a massive prestige boost to your family. Caesar wanted one. He was thirsty for one. It would have taken his career to the next level and would have helped him get on a seven-point step to be Caesar the Great. Right,
0: Caesar Shark the Great.
1: And there was only one problem. Caesar was also up for consulship that year. And to be elected consul, you had to present yourself before the Senate as a private citizen, risking your creditors.
0: And that was a problem for Caesar for other reasons, too. Remember that rule about how generals couldn't enter the city until it was time for their triumph because it gave everyone extremely unpleasant Sulla flashbacks? Caesar couldn't both enter the city as a private citizen and get his triumph as a conquering general. It was one or the other. He tried to have both. He sent a request asking the Senate to let him stand for the consulship in absentia. The Senate nixed this, so Caesar made a decision, sacrifice his triumph and stand for consul. It was a painful decision, but you can see why. He sacrificed a self-aggrandizing grandstand for the chance at real power. Caesar left his army outside the city and entered as a private citizen to stand for consul. And the Senate was livid.
1: By this time, Caesar had made a lot of enemies, especially among the traditionalists like Cato and Cicero. He had done a lot to deliberately piss off the sullen regime in the past decade or so. Here's a fun example of that. At one point, I think during his Adol ship in 65 BC, this would have been five or six years ago, since bringing out the images of Marius at his aunt's funeral had gone so well, Caesar took that stunt a step further. He commissioned more images of Marius and statues of the victories bearing trophies. And he had them set up all over the capital in the middle of the night. People woke up in the morning to find these golden glittery statues bearing inscriptions celebrating Marius's victories all over the capital. It was like Christmas morning for the downtrodden God and Marian supporters and magpies of the world, as well as a giant FU to the sullen regime. The citizens lost it, and so did the magpies.
0: Jenna always has to make sure to mention the um, impact on the magpie contingent. <laughs> <laughs> Marius'
1: underground supporters gathered in the capital moved to tears and wildly applauding. And of course, Caesar just slapped his sunscreen in and basked in the glow of it all.
0: Caesar wasn't just annoying to the traditionalists, he was dangerous. People were willing to riot in the streets for him, and his troops loved him enough to declare him Imperator. (laughs) we're ridiculous that made the conservative factions twitchy they didn't like caesar's agenda and they didn't like the kind of loyalty he inspired in angry mobs and armies and they didn't like the way he wore his toga and they didn't like his face
1: i mean can you blame them about the (laughs) loyalty and angry mobs and armies i mean that is slightly terrifying they do have a point there But his toga, I mean, that's not fair. Or
0: his face. He can't help that. Caesar can't help his face, you guys. We don't blame you for being upset about the angry mobs. We'd also be upset about the angry mobs. So they did everything they could to stop him. And they probably believed they were on the side of right here. I feel like that's one key thing about Caesar's story is that it's so often presented as he's the good guy and he's on the side of the common man. And that isn't how everybody saw it. And sometimes they had a point. Caesar definitely
1: was a populist. And he definitely spoke up for the desires of the retired troops, but he also wanted to be king. Everything he was doing was about him being in charge. You could argue that his populist platform was very calculating. It was to elevate him and to use the power of his supporters to make other people afraid of him.
0: Right. So anyway, the conservative factions of the Senate did everything they could to stop Caesar from gaining more power and from standing as consul. And once it was clear that they couldn't stop him, they tried to hamstring him. Caesar fought back. The minute he hit Rome, he negotiated a peace between Crassus and Pompey, the two big power movers in Roman politics. And I cannot express how big a feat that was just to get these two in the same room without killing each other. But Caesar was actually unique uniquely placed to do it. I
1: mean, Crassus completely believed that he was in his pocket because Caesar owed him literally everything. And Pompey, well, they had something in common. They were both great military minds.
0: And one thing you notice about looking at Pompey's career is that he was a really good general and he was likable, but he wasn't that politically adept. Like, he kept making these missteps. And Caesar was politically adept, so Pompey needed Caesar too. Caesar had something that they both needed. Caesar somehow got these two to unite behind him. The three men agreed to make no moves that did not benefit the other two and to back each other in all things this was the first triumvirate caesar solidified the agreement by marrying his daughter julia to pompey who was suddenly single after divorcing his previous wife muncia for infidelity with guess who no not caesar shocker who wasn't (laughs) Caesar's? who wasn't getting some of that magic d back then everyone was getting some of it (laughs) everyone who wanted some got some
1: And Caesar's daughter Julia would have been about 17, and Pompey was 47. Six years older than her own dad. Yes, she's marrying someone older than her own dad. And Pompey fell wildly, ridiculously, passionately in love with Julia. And he was ridiculed for it. And apparently, despite the age
0: difference, Julia loved him back, and this was a happy marriage. It looks really problematic to us today, but... According to the ancient sources, at least, they were happily married. Yeah, which is slightly astonishing. Kind of mind-blowing, but that's what it
1: says. Meanwhile, Caesar married a teenager named Calpurnia. She was 16
0: and he was...
1: Forty-one.
0: This whole triumvirate was sealed with a round of marriage to teenagers. Which is just awful. Very disturbing. Calpurnia was known to be
1: shy and retiring, not a political animal at all, and Caesar kept on seeing Servilia after he was married to Calpurnia. Every consul needs a co-consul. Caesar wanted to run jointly with a rich guy named Lucius Lucius.
0: Lucius Lucius? It actually does, if you look at it quickly, look like luscious Lucius. (laughs) I
1: think you guys have been listening long enough and you want to run with it, so that's what we're going to call him. And Luscious Lucius was (laughs) politically hands-off. Pretty much a walking ATM machine who would have given Caesar carte blanche... But the sullen traditionalists laid out heavy bribes to make sure that it was a guy named Bibulus sharing the consulship with Caesar instead.
0: Caesar had worked with Bibulus before. They'd served together as aediles five years ago, overseeing public festivals and buildings. Bibulus was about as charismatic as vanilla pudding. Oh, that's
1: unfair to vanilla pudding. I mean, I don't like vanilla pudding, but some people do.
0: Well, sure. I mean, vanilla pudding is delicious, but it's not known for its riveting speeches, is all I'm saying.
1: Well, that's fair enough. But also, vanilla pudding is not known to be something that can make a speech.
0: Bibulus was also known as not being some, someone who could make a speech. <laughs> Funny enough. <laughs> <laughs> I set that up for you. <laughs> you could argue whether vanilla pudding was better at speech making than Bibulus. He was good at meme making, though. We're going to get to that. While they were both dials, Bibulus split the cost for all the lavish public festivals and restoration projects. But Caesar took all the credit. Bibulus was kind of a good sport about this. He joked that he'd suffered the same fate as Pollux at the Temple of Castor in Pollux. Everyone just called it, the Temple of Castor. But Bibulus wasn't joking around now. He was there to be a check on Caesar's power to stop him at every turn, and this did not work out so well. One of Caesar's first acts as consul was a favor to Pompey. He put forth a totally routine bill to redistribute some land to Pompey's soldiers who'd been waiting for their resettlement package for several years. Bibulus opposed this bill passionately, staging a walkout, insulting the soldiers who would have benefited from the bill, and even trying to prevent the vote by declaring that he'd seen ill omens that prevented the Senate from gathering. And Caesar totally ignored this. Because Caesar was the Pontifex Maximus, so he had the authority to. This could cause a massive riot. You don't want veterans really
1: angry at you. Like, this is not a good plan, Bibulus.
0: Yeah, Bibulus is not looking at the arc of history here when it comes to the armies and how they interacted with the leadership of ancient Rome. Yeah. Finally, Bibulus stormed up the steps of the Temple of Castor.
1: sorry, the Temple of Castor and Pollux, to protest the bill. But Pompey had flooded the city with his soldiers to intimidate the opposition. These soldiers were rightly pissed off, belligerent, and looking for a fight. Bibulus was the perfect target.
0: Yeah, because he he picked on them earlier. Well, yeah, and they have been waiting ages for this
1: resettlement package. They'd done their duty. This is deeply unfair.
0: And he was basically doing it because his job was just to trip up Caesar at every turn. He was just blocking him to block him.
1: Yeah, and he was not taking any consideration for the fact that these were people's lives and livelihoods that he was really impacting, and people who had served their country, like, not okay. Sorry, I get really riled up about that. Anyway, an angry mob roughed Bigulus up, pushed him to the ground, and dumped a bucket of manure on him. Bibulus staggered to his feet and screamed at the crowd to kill him and end his humiliation. Just kill me! I'm stinky and this is awful and you won't let me do my vote and I hate you and I just want to go home! Just kill me already and make it end! and they may have actually just gone ahead and done that, except his friends persuaded him to calm down, take refuge in the nearby temple, take a deep breath, manure can be washed off, this is not the end of your political career, it's all right. Take a breath, put things in perspective. In five years, is anyone going to care? Exactly, and if they're not going to care, then you shouldn't care right now. Caesar's land distribution measure passed, and Bibulus hid out in his house for the rest of his consulship, from which he issued declarations of bad omens and wrote scathing pamphlets denouncing Caesar.
0: He had a Tumblr account that was dedicated to just negative Caesar memes. Yeah, or an Instagram account that
1: was just like...
0: Dispatches from from being
1: a refugee of Caesar in your own home. And you know what? (laughs) That's one way to pass a year, Bibulus. (laughs) Thing is, everyone laughed at him. At this time, yearly days were referred to by the two people holding the consulship at that time. It was considered the height of hilarity to date things in the consulship of Julius and Caesar, rather than Bibulus and Caesar. Ouch!
0: (laughs) Sick burn! With Pompey and Crassus at his back, there was nothing Caesar couldn't strong-arm the Senate into. Pompey would flood the city with his soldiers to intimidate Caesar's enemies, and Crassus made sure the bribes got paid. The situation got so bad that many senators left town, when Caesar looked around one time and remarked, huh, why is the Senate house so empty? (laughs) Why is that? One elderly senator straight up told Caesar that they'd all fled town because they were terrified of his armed followers. If you're getting unpleasant solo flashbacks right now, you're not alone. Basically, all of Rome is with you. Toward the end of Caesar's year in office, the political mood started to turn. Caesar faced fierce political opposition and not always just from the traditionalists. Now, even the angry mob faction was kind of 50-50 on Caesar. Some were still on his side, but others saw a dictatorship waiting to happen or one that maybe already had.
1: Meanwhile, Bibulus stayed in hiding, announcing his bad omens to the Pontifex Maximus, because that's gonna work well for you, and releasing his pamphlet. And these started to be a thing. Crowds of people would gather in the forum and cackle with glee at the increasingly scandalous insults, and he was getting all the likes, he was going viral, it was happening for him. Caesar's old affair with Nicomedes was dredged up. Bibulus called him the Queen of Bithynia.
0: Caesar as the Queen of Bithynia is just he should have just leaned right into that. I know. Uh. Anyway, moving on, Pompey
1: and Crassus were targets too. Pompey once gave a speech denying the accusations in Bibulus's pamphlets, which only made people snicker behind his back. Pompey, dispatch from the 21st century, don't feed the trolls. Exactly. Anyway, a plot to assassinate Pompey was uncovered and a young aristocrat was executed for it.
0: So by the end of Caesar's very eventful consulate, once again, Rome was looking extremely hot for him and he was looking to skip town. He'd made a lot of political enemies. Comparisons with Sulla were starting to happen and that made people stabby. See, Caesar wanted comparisons with Alexander the Great. What he was getting was comparisons with Sulla. Nobody wants to remind people of Sulla. A lot of people were just waiting for his consulship to end so they could sue him for offense against the state. Not to mention, he was eyeballs deep in debt to Crassus. Caesar, at the end of his consulate, had some serious needs. These were, number one, another position, quick. Immunity from prosecution for, say, three to five years. Enough time for all his abuses of government to blow over. Number two,
1: money. Because student loan debt cannot be discharged by bankruptcy, and neither can your debts to Daddy Shark Crassus.
0: Right, you were not going to get away with not paying him back. Number three, a military victory so big and so glorious that it would overshadow Pompey Shark the Great, Rome's military golden boy, and burnish up Caesar's reputation back home and make everyone start comparing him to Alexander the Great, finally. Because much like
1: Alaric, who just wanted to be
0: senior advertising director
1: of the Goths, all Caesar wanted was to be Caesar the Great. The Senate couldn't stop Caesar from picking his own next move. The Senate tried to assign him governorship over, quote, the woods and pastures of Italy, which literally meant they wanted to put him out to pasture.
0: Yeah, it was a junk governorship. It was like you get to be governor of, um, I don't know, the median strip in the highway. (laughs) Exactly.
1: And Caesar just went ahead and ignored this and he picked his own next assignment. And there was one region Caesar could be governor of that would fulfill all of his needs. Governorship of Gaul. So at this time, the Roman Republic had a big territory in what was now Spain. They called it Hispania. Connecting that territory with the rest of the Republic was a thin stretch of Roman territory running along the bottom of France. The Romans called this area Transalpine Gaul. To the north of that, though, was basically Free Gaul, or most of France today, which at the time was unconquered territory, or, as Caesar would see it, fair game.
0: Remember, Caesar didn't like to plunder his own provinces. He preferred to beat up on neighboring tribes instead. The optics were better. The free Gaul had vast stretches of unconquered territory ripe for the plundering. If he could conquer Gaul, Caesar could enrich himself massively, pay off his creditors, and return to Rome a hero. He'd have more money than Crassus and a bigger army than Pompey. If he played this right, he'd be invulnerable when he got back to Rome, the next best thing to a god. If he played it wrong, assuming he survived, his creditors and political enemies would rip him to pieces. So he just couldn't play it wrong. It was win or die. With this in mind, Caesar turned his eyes toward Gaul.
1: And that's it for this week. Join us in two weeks for the next episode in this series. And in the meantime, come and find us on social, on Twitter, at Ancient Hist Fan, and on Instagram and Facebook, at Ancient History Fangirl.
0: And if you'd like to support the podcast, we'd love it if you checked out our Patreon at patreon slash Fangirl. But if you'd rather not get locked into a monthly thing, you can also check out our Ko-Fi. There you can kick us a few bucks if you like the podcast and you want to support us. And it means the world to us it really does
1: and if you like what we do feel free to leave a review or
0: tell a friend we're still
1: building up our audience so every bit helps and seeing those reviews or feedback on our website or comments on our posts they really just make it so worthwhile thank you so much and we'll see you in two weeks